0: Uh, Good morning. Uh, Let me welcome you back to this continuation of a conference on a constitution for the ages, James Madison the Framer. Uh, We're delighted that you're here, and we're delighted uh, that most of our speakers are here. Uh, We will need to rearrange the schedule today by bringing Jennifer Dudelsky's paper up to the second slot in the morning, session, and we hope that Pauline Mayer will be able to reach uh, Princeton by time to deliver the paper about 2.30 in the slot Jennifer would have had. Uh, Let me uh, again welcome you to this uh, conference. Um, The occasion, of course, is the beginning of a year-long set of celebrations of James Madison's 250th year of birth. Uh, Madison, of course, was a member of the class of 1771 at Princeton. Uh, We claim him for the graduate school because he stayed on for a short period to read with President Witherspoon uh, after his uh, baccalaureate degree was received. Uh, We also have a special interest in him at this time of year when the Alumni Association of Princeton has its annual gathering, which it will have this Saturday, and James Madison, after serving as President of the United States, stepped up in his very late years to be the first president of our Alumni Association. So the ties to Princeton go very deep, and in this centennial year of the graduate school, we're delighted uh, to sponsor this conference, uh, which we think uh, is a wonderful set of papers uh, about uh, this remarkable figure. Two very uh, minor uh, announcements. Uh, there are restrooms in the basement of this building, in the seventh entry, as well as in the other academic buildings. Uh, this session uh, will break about 10.15 or 10.20. Uh, At that time, uh, you can get coffee or refreshments in the Campus Center, which uh, is to my right, your left, uh, in the old Palmer Hall for people who knew the old Princeton campus well. Um, Finally, let me say it's very important for you to pick up badges uh, as the day goes on. I think our numbers will swell, and admission to this auditorium, Uh, will be only for those with badges that have uh, been reserved as a result of registration for the conference. Let's begin our morning session. I'm delighted that Barbara Oberg will introduce our uh, first paper presenter. Barbara came to Princeton several years ago. Uh, She is responsible for editing the Jefferson Papers here at Princeton and is a member of uh, the Princeton History Department. Barbara.
1: Jack looks awfully lonesome up there. sitting right. <laughs> so, you know, we have to give him a lot of support. Uh, Jack Rakoff is the W.R. Co. Professor of History at Stanford. He's a graduate of Haverford College and a PhD student of the eminent Bernard Balin from Harvard. And Jack's been informing us about American po- politics, uh, since his first book, The Beginnings of National Politics, An Interpretive History of the Continental Congress. That was published in 1979. That, that was a long time ago because he's done so much work since then, but uh, It was a very important book. It's one that I used a lot in understanding the Continental Congress during the 1780s, and he he kind of rescued politics for us when it was getting swamped by the social historians. Uh, His well-known original meanings, politics, and ideas in the making of the Constitution won a number of prizes, including the 1997 Pulitzer Prize. And Madison, of course, figures prominently in that. Jack is a very careful and perceptive reader of Madison. He he plays with the language, he turns it around, and and he's really one of the very, very best. In recent years, Jack's also become a public figure, a public intellectual, as as we like to call them. So he's in the classroom and out of the classroom. He writes op-ed pieces for the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times. Uh, you may remember that he testified before the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee on the background and history of impeachment, and there is a real background and history to it in American history. His most recent work will be published this coming fall, so you'll get a, a heads-up on that around the time of the anniversary of the election, the unfinished election of 2000. We look forward to that, as we do to Jack talking about reading Madison's mind, and I can't think of anybody better than Jack to read Madison's mind. Thank you.
2: As I was thinking on the way over, that, uh, there were a couple moments in the uh, Virginia Ratification Convention of 1788 and then again in the first federal Congress of 1789 when the stenographer trying to record the debates uh, listening to Madison notes something to the effect that uh, here, Mr. Madison's voice dropped uh, and his words were lost. Uh, I'm gonna, I want to start this simply by apologizing for giving my remarks, uh, sitting down, which is not my usual posture. Uh, but I flew across country yesterday with a bit of a virus, and I want to have enough strength to, to get through uh, not only my own remarks this morning, but hopefully the rest of the day. So I thought it might be a slight advantage to me if if I I took this position. Let me start by saying something about my title, because it actually has uh, two points of origins that that I'd like to speak about very briefly. Um, One is somewhat prosaic, and the other, I think, is somewhat more substantive. Um, A few years ago, I was asked by the Library of America to edit a collection of Madison's writings, uh, which appeared about a year or so ago. Uh, It's a project I took on. Yeah, with somewhat mixed feelings, you know, kind of, kind of, in more of a dutiful work than something I really felt all that strongly about. Uh, but once it was, uh, pu- once it was completed and published, I have to say I, I felt terrifically proud about having agreed to do it because, because uh, uh, Madison's thinking is, of course, so important for us, uh, and also because I think having a one-volume compilation of his most important writings and speeches really does provide a, uh, a useful. Reference work. So I was given uh, several occasions to speak about the preparation of that volume, and the, the the title of reading Madison's mind struck me as perhaps the most appropriate way to try to characterize what what one should try to do as as you dip into a volume of that nature. But then, secondly, and, and more important, I hope, and I'll, I'll try to bear this out as I go along. Uh, I've started realizing, having worked with Madison pretty much for 30 years or more as a, as a scholar, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, I've started to realize that there are depths to his intellect that I, I myself had not really appreciated before and that have to do very much with his uh, with the remarkable capacity for abstraction that I really want to spend a good part of my remarks this morning trying to explain. And, and that's why, I've, um, for those of you coming in, I hope everybody has this document known as the Vices of the Political System of the United States because this is going to be not merely a paper but a little bit of a teaching exercise as we go along, and we're going to spend a little time working our way through uh, the text, and and especially through one particular passage of it. And when we get to that, I'm going to try to explain, and this is, I think, a wonderful uh, comment to make for a a Princeton audience, uh, why Madison should be regarded not only as a Princeton's first graduate student, because he stayed on here to to study Hebrew uh, for a bit uh, with uh, President Witherspoon, uh, but also I think Madison might well be regarded as Princeton's first game theorist. And those who know the history of game theory and who understand that Princeton is the institution uh, where modern game theory emerged, uh, I think we'll see there's a nice little irony, perhaps something more, to thinking about Madison in this capacity. So if we want to talk about reading Madison's mind, what kinds of problems, what kinds of questions do we have to consider? Well, it seems to me there are three basic problems that are inherent uh, in this subject. The first, and I, th- I suppose the most obvious, Uh, is simply to understand the content of James Madison's ideas. What we have to do, of course, with any thinker uh, to understand him or her, we we, we have to be patient, we have to work our way through the relevant texts, Uh, we have to make sure we understand the argument, we have to look for echoes and resonances, we have to look for inconsistencies, Uh, but we we have to get a handle, we have to get control over the body of the material. Madison, I think, is a particularly interesting and challenging figure to work with in this respect, Uh, because he wasn't in in so many ways so subtle and so nuanced uh, and in a certain sense so complicated a thinker. In this respect, I I think it's always useful to draw a comparison between Madison and and his good friend and political ally, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Madison said of Jefferson uh, after his death, a wonderful encapsulated view of of Jefferson's intellect, Uh, that Jefferson had the habit common in men of great genius of expressing in strong and round terms impressions of the moment. Jefferson, from Madison's perspective, was, in a certain sense, a bit of a streak hitter. Someone who was kind of given to go off on a you know on a certain tangent would you know would get a B in his bonnet, would find a particularly elegant, concise, and vivid way to say something, and then would have to face the consequences, which Madison was usually eager to point out to him, of thinking through the logic of what Jefferson was saying. So Jefferson, of course, uh, is is a much more vivid writer than Madison. Uh, you know many uh, many better phrases in, in the Jefferson oeuvre uh, than we'll ever find in Madison's. Uh, you know much much easier to quote. But Madison is certainly the more nuanced, the more complicated, uh, the more interesting. I think, from a scholar's perspective, uh, to have to unpack. It might be said of Madison, uh, or at least it might be asked of Madison, whether, whether he ever, whether he ever had any impressions of the moment. I mean, one sense with Madison was that everything was always very, very uh, carefully considered, uh, deeply probed, uh, and indeed, uh, it's, uh, it seems to me there's a kind of characteristic form of uh, Madisonian ex- expression. Which is uh, no essay is complete without uh, three distinctions and you know x number of qualifications on those distinctions. Medicine's mode of analysis is constantly to distinguish one thing from another and to uh, and to try to probe each one on its merits. So we start by recognizing medicine is not the easiest thinker uh, from his period uh, to come to grips with, uh, and so that's our first problem. How, how do we get how do we get a handle on the content of his ideas? The second problem with Madison, uh, treating him, I suppose, biographically, is what might be called the consistency problem. Madison, after all, had a terrifically long career, active career in uh, American politics. He enters politics, oh, in the you know in the early months of 1776 as a delegate to the Virginia Provincial Convention. Uh, he serves a uh, term of the Virginia Assembly, loses an election. Uh, Then serves on the Virginia Council in the late 1770s. Then uh, serves in the Continental Congress in the early 1780s. Back in the Virginia Assembly, uh, back in you know then of course he writes the Constitution, helps to get it ratified. Serves in the serves in the early Federal Congresses. Goes back to Virginia with his new bride uh, for a few years. uh, Serves eight years as Secretary of State, eight years as President. uh, Then we get to 1817. So Madison has an active political career. Uh, from you know, 1776 to 18, 1817, that's to say four decades. And it's followed by uh, a vigorous retirement, at least an intellectually vigorous retirement, of two, fully two decades until his death uh, June 28, uh, 1836, uh, when his correspondence, which had become very attenuated in many ways during his uh, career in the executive branch, again, has become, again becomes very informative and re- deeply reflective about American politics. So we have to start by by recognizing that here we have 40 years, and really in a certain sense uh, 60 years, uh, of active political commentary, and we we, we might expect some variation uh, over the time, uh, and we we have to try to make sense of that. And of course when we talk about the consistency problem, uh, much more narrowly, or much more directly, uh, we also have to recognize that uh, there is a fundamental puzzle that all Madison scholars have to wrestle with, which is how was it that the Nationalists of 1787-1788 The, in a certain sense, the the reactionary radical, who wanted to give Congress, uh, the new Congress, an unlimited negative over all state laws, becomes by 1798 the author of the Virginia Resolutions, uh, which can be rightly taken, again with some Madisonian nuance, uh, as an early expression of the theory of of state states' rights and arguably even of uh, uh, residual state sovereignty. Something we hope that Professor Mayer will be here to talk about later uh, this afternoon. Uh, so there's a, there's a, beyond, beyond the, the, the difficulty you the need to kind of track Madison's thinking over a period of 40, 40 years and more, there's the very specific problem. How do we understand how Madison, the arch nationalist in the late 1780s, becomes the father of states' rights theory in the late 1790s? But third, and I think most important, uh, the task of reading Madison's mind involves understanding how he came to play the extraordinarily creative role that he did in the late 1780s, during the movement for constitutional reform that leads to the Federal Convention of 1787, uh, and then, of course, two years to to the ratification of the Constitution by the summer of 1788, uh, and then the following year to the adoption of the Bill of Rights as a supplement, uh, important supplement, to the original constitutional project. Uh, At every phase of this movement, that's to say from the movement to to reform the Articles of Confederation, to call a constitutional convention, to get the Constitution written, to get it ratified, to have it amended. Uh, Madison was, it seems to me, without doubt, uh, indisputably, uh, primus inter pares, and perhaps uh, more than inter pares, really, uh, a person who stands uniquely above all his colleagues uh, in this great project. Which is not, of course, to say that Madison got everything he wanted, because, as we all know, in fact, he probably lost as many issues uh, as, as he won. And indeed, he leaves uh, Philadelphia, as I'm sure many of you know. He leaves the Philadelphia Convention uh, in some ways as, as severely disillusioned uh, about the end result and really quite pessimistic as to whether or not the Finnish Constitution, uh, will uh, indeed solve all the problems that Madison felt had to be solved. Uh, but nevertheless, there's no question that, uh, Madison is the key actor throughout this period and that, in, that his actions depend upon a kind of intellectual creativity. Uh, as well as a political ingenuity and, I suppose, uh, assiduity, a kind of stick about politics and a, and, a, and a creativity about politics, which is really quite remarkable. You know, if, if one reviews Madison's career in this period, I mean, just to go into it in just a little bit more detail and r- recall everything that he was involved with. Uh, you know, Madison had you know served in Congress, but in, in the mid-1780s, let's say, if, if we pick up the story in 1785, Madison at, at that point is deeply involved in trying to get the Virginia Assembly to enact uh, Jefferson's uh, revised code of the Virginia, of Virginia law. Uh, he's deeply involved in defeating the, the famous General Assessment Bill. Uh, That Patrick Henry and others were supporting Virginia, which which would have represented, in a certain sense, an establishment or reestablishment of religion. He succeeds in getting the, uh, uh, succeeds at that point in in also having enacted uh, Jefferson's most important legislative uh, work, the the Statute for Religious Freedom for Virginia. Uh, Madison is actively corresponding with James Monroe, who had taken his place in the Continental Congress. Monroe is, uh, and, and they are kind of discussing coordinating strategy about amending the Articles of Confederation. Madison is involved, although initially somewhat skeptically, in the maneuvers that lead to the calling of the Annapolis Convention. In September 1786, he goes to Annapolis, which is a bit of a bust uh, because hardly anybody shows up, except for Madison and John Dickinson and Alexander Hamilton and a handful of other interesting types. Uh, and in Annapolis, they decide to uh, call the uh, to go ahead and issue a call for a federal convention to meet the following May. Masson goes back to Virginia, make sure that Virginia takes the lead uh, in carrying out that recommendation. He then begins his preparations for the convention, takes the leading role in terms of framing the Virginia plan, uh, takes a leading role, though by not the only delegate to do so. Uh, during the debates in Philadelphia, and so on and so on. I mean, it's just a remarkable record uh, of committed political activity. But what makes it all the more striking, it seems to me is that Madison's efforts to deal with these problems uh, represent an extraordinary uh, burst of intellectual and political creativity, which I'm I'm going to try to explain now in more detail as we go along. So if we ask the question, as historians have asked, how do we account for Madison's creativity? What was there about him, or what what, what factors, what attributes enabled him to act in this way? Uh, There are a number of factors, it seems to me, that different scholars have have talked about and, and tried to emphasize to say, thanks, I needed that. The the first, uh, I think, fairly obvious is, is a simple argument from experience. Madison, I think, uh, not, not quite alone among his contemporaries, but certainly in a very distinctive way, Madison came to live for politics in a way that I think was very rare in the 18th century. The only person I know of who I think who I'd really compare to Madison in this respect is Samuel Adams, a very... Very different kind of personality, to put it mildly, but what the two men shared is a deep absorption in political life uh, that uh, was very unusual for a period when politics was essentially avocational. Not really professional, but avocational. Uh, when Madison went to the Congress in 1780, he didn't go back to Virginia for three and a half years until his term was expired. It's worth noting in passing that Madison was the first victim of term limits under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, he's he's uh, he's in Philadelphia and then uh, actually of course briefly here at, uh, you know at Princeton uh, in December 1783 for a, for a full period of three and a half years without going back once to Montpelier uh, and he never missed being away you know being away from Virginia never bothered him at least at least at this point uh, once he returns to Virginia he goes almost immediately to the Virginia Assembly. Madison found a fulfillment in political life in public life a uh, fulfillment that the revolution really gave him an opportunity to to enjoy and to discover uh, that he never would have found any place else uh, in 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 his world. He certainly would not have founded as a planter uh, in the backwaters of uh, Orange County, Virginia. So we have to start by recognizing that one source of Madison's creativity may simply have been his deep sen- his deep political experience from which he from which he drew very profound lessons. Secondly, uh, it's fairly obvious that Madison, as a as an intellectual, trying to read his mind, so to speak, had a kind of studiousness, which I think is rare in public life. Uh, He believed that one, you know, a commonplace belief in the 18th century, to be sure, that one could indeed discover lessons from history and apply them to matters uh, of public affairs. But he went about doing so much more uh, more assiduously, uh, much more scrupulously, much more consistently than I think almost any of his peers. Part of his preparations for the Federal Convention, as I'm sure many of you know, was to uh, work his way through a few trunkloads of books that Jefferson had sent back to him uh, from Paris, uh, works of history and public law and political philosophy. Uh, we have Madison's notes on a lot of his reading, the so-called notes on ancient and modern confederacies, which Madison went uh, with, I think, a great deal of frustration. Uh, went through uh, all these histories, you know, going back to the you know the great confederacies of antiquity, uh, the Achaean and the Amphictyonic uh, confederacies, and so on. Uh, and Madison went through this stuff very scrupulously. He uh, kept his reading notes, trying to figure out what had gone wrong with all these confederacies. Uh, and this is very much part of his preparations for Philadelphia. I mean, sitting down and reading these literally dusty tomes that Jefferson had shipped back from Paris. So he had a kind of studiousness and a belief in applied learning, which I think was also perhaps not uncommon for his age, but nevertheless quite distinctive in the way in which he applied it. Uh, some scholars have also suggested uh, that Madison owed a particular debt uh, to David Hume, uh, the great Scots philosopher uh, and historian, and I suppose many other things as well, whom Madison had first encountered here. At Princeton. Uh, The late Douglas Adair argued in an important essay that uh, Madison's uh, agenda for Philadelphia at a critical moment was formed or reformed by reading one of Hume's essays, uh, The Idea of a Perfect Commonwealth. Historians have been talking about this, I should say, for 40 years, and I I thought the subject was dead until I received a month ago uh, a, a fresh article on it. Uh, being submitted to the William Mary Quarterly, which suggests it's still alive and well, and you know there there might still be a lot to the idea. So there's an ongoing controversy about how we measure Hume's influence. But again, uh, another example uh, of Madison as a as a public figure who believed that the ideas he absorbed in his private reading might be relevant to his public life. And then finally, in, in terms of the kind of quality of mind, uh, it's clear uh, to me. I think, for everybody who reads uh, reads Madison, uh, that he he felt very acutely. Uh, the same sentiment that uh, John Adams had expressed back in 1776, when Americans first begin writing constitutions of government. You know, th- there's a wonderful fr- uh, wonderful sentence at the end of John Adams' pamphlet, Thoughts on Government, uh, where Adams says, uh, you and I, my friend, uh, the pamphlet takes the form of, of a letter to his fellow delegates at the Continental Congress. Adams says something to the effect, you and I, my friend, have been sent into life at a time when the greatest lawgivers of antiquity would have wished to have lived. When before the President Polka had three million people, a full field and a fair opportunity to form the wisest and best governments that uh, the human imagination can devise. I mean, I may have garbled a little, but that's, that's the essence uh, of the quotation. Uh, this sense of opportunity, that, uh, that a world of possibility had opened up to the Americans, uh, that they did uh, not just have to re- think about governments as institutions that were passed down from time immemorial, into which one was born, but over which one had no control, especially in the sense of creative control. Uh, it's clear that Madison shared that sense of possibility that Adams had expressed so vividly back in 1776. And I think this goes with a frame of mind, which we see so clearly in his writing, a willingness to challenge orthodoxies, a willingness to recognize that the learning that one derived from books, and which I've suggested could indeed be quite useful and valuable and could be applied, nevertheless could also be tested. Against experience and against the realm of possibility, so that sense of living in a world that was, as Tom Paine once put it, you know, we you know we, we can make the world over. Well, I mean, Madison, being rather conservative, was not you know was didn't have Paine's kind of utopian enthusiasms, but the sense of possibility was certainly there. So I think these are all important ways to uh, think about uh, the sources of Madison's creativity. When when we set about trying to read his mind, uh, when we tried to uh, make sense makes sense of it um, but i think we can push the story a little bit further if we look more more specifically uh, at exactly how his thinking unfolded on the eve of the federal convention uh, of course ordinarily when we try to read madison's mind what what this typically means what this means means, means most often is we consult his best-known texts. That is to say, usually if we wanted to know what did Madison really think or where did he distill his ideas uh, most vividly or most essentially, uh, I think the short answer, of course, is we'd open up the Federalist. Then we'd read Federalist 10, we'd read Federalist 51, and if we were more energetic, we'd read any of a number of other essays. Uh, But the the theory of Republican government that Madison expressed there uh, by way of justifying the Constitution, was the end result of a prior process of theorizing about government, and I, I, want, to be, I want to be careful to explain what I mean here. When Madison wrote the Federalist, uh, along with Hamilton and a few essays by John Jay, in, in the fall of 17 beginning of the fall of 1787, uh, the three co-authors, as Publius of course, had an agenda to have the Constitution ratified. Uh, They had a set of positions they had to defend. They were engaged in a public debate. They were responding to the kinds of criticisms that uh, had been directed against the Constitution by its anti-Federalist opponents. Uh, To some extent, what they argued in public was shaped by the arguments they had to answer coming from the other side. So if we look at the Federalist as the mature expression of Madison's theory, one of the things I think that we miss is that it was the end result of a prior intellectual activity that really went back to the period before the Constitution was written. That's to say it goes back at least to the spring of 1787, arguably even earlier. Then Madison's theory that's was the product of an activity that I'm going to call theorizing, which by which I mean using theory not to justify the positions you know you have to support, in this case ratification of the Constitution but theorizing for the purpose of analyzing what the problem was. So I want to tr- I want to try to distinguish theorizing as a political activity, using thinking somewhat abstractly about politics, as a way of diagnosing what's wrong and therefore what must be done. I want to try to distinguish that from writing theory as an activity of persuasion. And what I want to do in, in the balance of my remarks here is to use this document uh, that they'll say something about momentarily. Uh, Madison's notes on the the vices of the political system in the United States to show what the activity of theorizing as opposed to the production of theory as a rhetorical product was. Okay, so let me set the stage here. So in the spring of 1787, Madison was was eligible again to to go back to Congress, uh, his three years having uh, elapsed. Uh, since he was turned out in the fall of 1783. Uh, So he goes goes off to New York City. Uh, I'm sure he passed through Princeton en route. Uh, Congress didn't have much to do because they had a hard time mustering a quorum. Didn't have any money, so even if they had time to do something, wouldn't have had the resources to do it with. Uh, Madison took his reading notes along, probably took a fair fair chunk of his library along. Uh, And, of course, by this time, most of the states have appointed delegations uh, for the Philadelphia Convention, which is going to meet in May. And sometime in the spring of, uh, actually really at the very beginning of the spring of 1787, really, really over a period of, I think, of about a month, uh, sometime from mid-March to mid-April, from actually roughly from Madison's birthday to, let's say, the anniversary of Lexington and Concord, mid-March to mid-April, Madison pulls his thoughts together about, the, uh, you know, about what the agenda for the Federal Convention should be. Uh, we know this basically from four documents. Three are letters uh, to Jefferson, Edmund Randolph, and Washington, written between mid-March and mid-April. And the fourth is the document that we know is the Vices of the Political System of the United States, which which I hope everybody has a copy of, uh, because we're going to actually spend a little time walking our way uh, through uh, through the text. Uh, To me, reading these documents, and especially reading the Vices, is one of the most exciting exercises in intellectual history, uh, that I know of. I mean, I happen to think the Vices is the single most interesting text, and certainly the single most creative text, in the history of American political ideas. Uh, for one thing, uh, if you read it through to the end and, and you get to the final paragraphs, you'll see that this really is the first draft of Federalist 10. Uh, this is the first time that Madison works out, and, and you know the language is sufficiently similar, so that you know, we can say this with some confidence. This is really the first expression of the ideas that will take their mature form in Federalist 10. So, sometime, I think this document is probably was, well, it's, it's dated April 1787. Um, we actually, we don't have the document in Madison's hand. We have it in a, in, in a copy uh, from one of his, his fellow delegates to the convention from Maryland, uh, Daniel Carroll. Uh, but I, mean, I don't think there's any question that Madison, the, 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 the document is, is, is itself uh, authentic. Um, if we look at this document, and I should say this is a document I've worked with for 30 years, and, and it's really, um, I thought I knew it pretty much backwards and forward. It's really only the last year or two I, I finally I saw something new it, that I completely missed before uh, that, that, that I want to try to share with you. Basically, if we look at this document, though, it, it, first thing it breaks down in, in, into two components. Um, the first, if you look at you know the left-hand columns, where you know there's a you know kind of the rubric that's laid out on on the left-hand side. Failure of the states to comply with the constitutional requisitions, encroachments by the states on the federal authority, violations of the laws of, of nations and of treaties. If we work our way through, let's say, the eighth item of this document, that's to say about, <coughs> excuse me, about four pages in, what we'll see is that Madison is essentially summarizing uh, the basic problems of the Articles of Confederation. That's to say, the national government which had been framed back in the mid-1770s, ratified in 1781, uh, which Madison and other delegates' efforts to have amended uh, had never succeeded in doing, which was now in a condition of, to use the term they often use, in a condition of imbecility, uh, verging on a state of collapse. And then with item 9, there's a quiet but I think powerful, and really remarkably powerful shift in Madison's thinking. And, and this is worth noting. Um, look this, this first sentence, which is, is typically Madison in the sense that it, it really understates in terms of its, in terms of its rhetoric, the, the point it's making. In developing the evils which vitiate the political system of the United States, it is proper to include those which are found within the states individually as well as those which directly affect the states collectively. Since the former class have an indirect influence on the general malady, it must not be overlooked in forming a complete remedy. Jefferson would have put the thought much more elegantly and much more vividly, but basically, why do I think this is so important a sentence? Because Madison is saying that if we're going to have a convention, from this point on, if we're going to have a convention to deal with the problems of national government, we should not restrict its agenda to the national government alone. That's to say, to the weaknesses of the Congress. We should also use this occasion to deal with the, the vicissitudes, the vices of government within the states taken individually. That is to say... the the occasion the opportunity for a national constitutional convention should also be an opportunity to try to do something about the problem of government within the states taken individually and from this point Madison goes on to develop in a very quick compass three basic criticisms of the legislative history of the states and he indicts them for the multiplicity of the laws they've been passing this is Madison the libertarian states have just been legislating too much sounds a little bit like the supreme court talking about Congress, Uh, the mutability of the laws of the states, legislating too much, they're also changing their laws too often, and you don't want to change law too often because that will call the concept of law itself into question. And then finally, perhaps most interestingly, item 11, if the multiplicity and mutability of laws prove a want of wisdom, their injustice betrays a defect still more alarming. More alarming, not merely because it is a greater evil in itself, but because it brings more into question the fundamental principle of Republican government, that the majority who rule in such governments are the safest guardians, both of public good and of private rights. This is, uh, you know, what is Madison doing here? He's basically using this occasion to question, as he puts it, the fundamental premise of Republican government. The majority rules is a sufficient criterion. Uh, both of what the public good consists of, and also how one protects the rights, however one defines rights, how one protects rights against the danger of their abuse. And it's from this observation that Madison goes on to offer the analysis that we're more familiar with from Federalist 10. Okay, for 25 years of my career (laughs) as as a kind of Madison scholar, you know, working on problems of national government and using this document, I thought this transition here, partly because it sets up the argument for Federalist 10, Which is where Messing concludes. To which the conclusion which this leads was really the most interesting, the most important part of this text. But a couple years ago, partly because I was doing a lot of work with political scientist friends of mine, uh, and started and kind of developed, I think, some interest that I hadn't known previously. I got, I realized there's something much more interesting going on in an earlier passage, and this is the one I really want to spend the rest of my time. Uh, with you this morning trying to trying to look at his way of, of really understanding what I see as the remarkable faculties of Madison's mind. So I want you to turn back a page or two. Uh, and I want you now to look at item seven. The, the, we're gonna say I mean I want to say class. But I mean it's not quite appropriate for an audience of this kind to address you in those terms, uh, but I am thinking of myself acting in a teaching capacity here. So I want us to spend a little time with this text. Uh, because it really is, uh, within the space of, uh, you know, the you know, the, really the, the single long paragraph we're looking at, this is really a remarkable passage. And nothing, I think, better illustrates what I now see as, as, at its deepest level as, as the remarkable capacities of Madison's mind. So item number seven, want of sanction to the laws and of coercion in the government of the Confederacy. A sanction, by which Madison means essentially you know, a penalty, some mechanism of enforcement and punishment. A sanction is essential to the idea of law, as coercion is to that of government. The federal system being destitute of both wants the great vital principles of a political constitution. Under the form of such a constitution, it is in fact nothing more than a treaty of amity, of commerce and of alliance between so many independent and sovereign states. So Madison begins by stating the problem. It's a radical defect of the Confederation that it lacks powers of sanction or powers of coercion, uh, powers to enforce its decisions, require the states to comply with its decisions. Basically what Madison is taking on here is the question, can any system of federalism based upon the voluntary compliance of the states with the decisions of the national government ever be effective? That's the basic problem. Can any system of voluntary compliance, any system of federalism based on voluntary compliance, will that ever work? And Masson, then, having, having posed the problem, then deals with it by making five separate points. And, and, and again, I want, us, I want us to walk through this so we, so we see exactly what he's doing here. <coughs> Excuse me. So he begins by asking a historian's question. From what cause could so fatal an omission have happened in the Articles of Confederation? In other words, why didn't they? If this point is so obvious now, why did they blow it? Why did they not get it? Why did they not see it a decade earlier, when the Articles were drafted? And here is here is the answer. Seems to me I like this answer because it corresponds with something I wrote in, in my first book that Barbara referred to so generously before. Uh, Madison says, well, you know, why did so fatal omission happen? Well, from a mistaken confidence that the justice, the good faith, the honor, the sound policy of the several legislative assemblies would render superfluous any, any appeal to the ordinary motives by which the law secure the obedience of individuals, a confidence which does honor to the enthusiastic virtue of the compilers as much as the inexperience of the crisis apologizes for their errors. So here's Madison acting in effect as a historian, asking Why did they get it wrong a decade ago? And the answer is, well, you know, even though we know better now, it made sense at the time. You know, back in the mid-1770s, we were all patriots. You know, the period of what Tom Paine called sunshine patriotism. Uh, We were all united in the common cause. There was no question that the states wanted to resist Great Britain. Uh, Congress had commanded a great deal of respect. And so it wasn't necessary to think about coercion. It was a plausible political assumption at that point to think that the states would simply do the right thing. So Madison's first observation here, therefore, is a historical one. Empirical and historical. In an attempt to figure out why did something happen the way it did back then, or why did this omission take place? The second observation is also empirical and historical, but in a rather different sense. This is more the lessons of experience. The time which has since elapsed has had the double effect of increasing the light and tempering the warmth with which the arduous work may be revised. It is no longer doubted that a unanimous and punctual obedience of 13 independent bodies to the acts of the federal government ought not to be calculated on. Even during the war, when external danger supplied in some degree the defect of legal and coercive sanctions, how imperfectly did the states fulfill their obligations to the Union? In time of peace, we see already what is to be expected. So a second set of observations, also historical, but not an attempt to explain what happened in 1777, but rather attempt to identify, well, what have we learned since? Well, what have we learned since? We've learned that even during the war, once the start was going to drag on, it wasn't easy uh, to get the states to do the right thing, that the system of voluntary compliance started to break down. And now, since the war is over, it's become even more difficult to do so. So here again, Madison, reasoning from experience, and of course, in his case, this meant reflecting both upon his experience in the Congress in the early 1780s when he had been intensely involved in in the activities to get the states to sustain the war effort during its final critical phase. (coughs) And then, of course, back in the Virginia Assembly in the mid-1780s, he had worked hard but encountering a great deal of frustration to get Virginia to support national measures. So again, Madison reasoning empirically on the basis of his own experience. Politics has lived experience. Okay, but now Madison asks a different question, and his thinking, his mind, takes a different turn. How indeed could it be otherwise? How indeed could it be otherwise? What other result is to be expected? Now we get three further observations, which are cast in a completely different key. In the first place, Every general act of the union must necessarily bear unequally hard on some particular member or members of it. Secondly, the partiality of the members to their own interests and rights—a partiality which will be fostered by the courtiers of popularity. Courtiers of popularity here means state legislators, the kinds of petty demagogues, or people like Pat- Patrick Henry, whom Madison, in some ways, despised, uh, the kinds of dominant figures in state politics. Uh, who were not sufficiently supportive of national measures. The partiality of the members to their own member, to their own interests and rights, a partiality which should be fostered by the courtiers of popularity, will naturally exaggerate the inequality where it exists and even suspect it where it has no existence. Thirdly, a distrust of the voluntary compl- and this is the most important one, I think. Thirdly, a distrust of the voluntary compliance of each other may prevent the compliance of any, although it should be the latent disposition of all. Here are causes and pretexts which will never fail to render federal measures abortive. What has Madison done with these three points? It seems to me he, you know, maybe I'll, some of you might think I'm pushing this too 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 far. I have to see, but it seems to me now he's taking a step back from the empirical evidence, you know, the lessons of history, whether they relate to how the Articles were framed or what we've learned since, and is asking. Uh, essential structural, in essentially structural terms, what is the fundamental inherent, what are the fundamental inherent properties of any federal system resting on voluntary compliance of the states with national decisions? And what does Madison say? Well, basically there are three points here. The first is that the states are differently situated. So states, you know, that's to say, states have a variety of interests. And therefore we can never expect the actors, the players, we can never expect them to have an equal stake in complying with federal measures. Right? Because they have different interests. Secondly, there will always be state-based politicians, always, who will find it to their own partisan advantage, rent-seeking advantage, to criticize national measures for demagogic reasons. Right? There There will always be state politicians who, regardless of the merits of a case, will find will think it to be in their partisan interest to attack, you know, criticize federal federal measures or you know, try to prevent their their enforcement. And third, and, and this is, a, as I said, this is the best point, a distrust of the voluntary compliance of each each other may prevent the compliance of any, although it should be the latent disposition of all. Even when we might have a common interest, a latent disposition of all. Even when in fact the states really do have a common interest. If we're uncertain whether others are going to comply, why would any of us ever have the incentive to go first? Right. This is what political scientists and economists would call the shirking problem. It's basically a version of the free rider problem. Right. You know, why should, why would anybody have the incentive to go first if, if, you know, if you're doubtful about the willingness of others to comply? So it seems to me what Madison has done here. Now, you know, maybe I'm pushing this too far, but it seems to me he's taken a step back from, or rather, he starts with the empirical observations, and he then abstracts. From them in a way that it seems to me it's maybe this maybe not be game theory in any very sophisticated sense of the term but it seems to me he is making moves that are game theoretic in a recognized in a recognizable way of course this is a game theory doesn't exist in the 18th century we can say there was some qualification of course Condorcet um, who was uh, a friend of Jefferson's and uh, you know Madison Jefferson had sent Madison a copy of Condorcet's work, but nobody really understood, other than Condorcet, there's no evidence anybody understood Condorcet for about another 40 or 50 years or something like that. Um, I mean, there there might be, you know, so we might say there is a basis for some game theory in the 18th century, but it's not something that's being actively discussed or, you know, critically examined. So it seems to me, what, what strikes me about this passage, and, and I want to go on and, and say something about why it's so important as well, is it demonstrates two very different faculties in Madison's mind. On the one hand, an ability to draw, you know, careful lessons from the empirical data, but then a capacity to step back and to abstract from it, to think about the problem of compliance in recognizably game-theoretic terms at a time when game theory does not exist. Now, why is this so? Why do I think this is so important? Well, two basic reasons, as as it relates to the uh, Federal Convention of 1787. Um, The first is that it seems to me now, I'm not sure I realized this earlier, but it seems to me now that in terms of framing the agenda for Philadelphia, this really is the the moves Madison is making here, uh, really are the critical ones you need to explain why his agenda for Philadelphia takes the form it does. If you cannot have a system of voluntary compliance... If you cannot rest federalism on the voluntary compliance of the states with national decisions, national recommendations, resolutions, requisitions, and the like. Then it follows, and Madison makes this clear, that what you have to create is a system of federalism by law. That is to say, the national government has to be empowered to enact, execute, and adjudicate its own laws. It has to be made independent of the states and given the capacity to do everything it needs to do. It really has to be made self-sufficient. Enact, execute, adjudicate its own laws. Once you reach that point, once you you think of the national government as a government acting by law, then you have to think about how do you give it, how do you give that government its full institutional attributes. That's an awkward phrase. Basically means how do you how do you set up a national legislature? How do you set up a national executive? How do you set up a national judiciary? What are these institutions going to look like? If it has to be if it has to be a government acting by law, how is it going to be constituted? How is it going to be designed? It's at this point and, and, and here. I mean, I, I should say with you know, the, especially having Gordon Wood here as, as one of our keynote speakers, uh, you know, so much of my work has, has rested on, on, on Gordon's book from you know 30 30 some years ago. But it's basically, it seems to me, once you reach that point, then then we understand how it was that Madison and his colleagues at Philadelphia reached back into the experience of the states and drew upon all the criticisms that had been mounting against the institutional design of the national government as it had been... Uh, excuse me, of, of the state governments as they had been newly, newly framed and fashioned back in the mid-1770s. So the 1787 becomes a moment when the criticisms of the state governments are now applied to the task of designing uh, a national government. So this is the first critical passage here. If, you have, if you're going to have a government acting by law, it has to be a real government. It has to have those three basic departments, a bicameral legislature, a quasi-independent executive, an independent judiciary, uh, and that—that's the critical triggering mechanism. That's kind of the point of departure, the point of entry, which explains why the federal convention's agenda takes the form it does. So that's point number one in this. You know, why does it really—why you know, does it really matter? The second point, the one that comes more back to my, to my somewhat tentative argument about theorizing as opposed to theory, is that we might ask this question: Suppose Madison had stopped his analysis of the problems of voluntary compliance with those first two points. The one about why did they get it wrong you know, back in the mid-1770s and what have we learned since. Would that have been sufficient to justify this transposition in, in the conclusions that he was going to draw? That's to say, if you just rested the argument on empirical data alone, what we know about what was wrong in the mid-1770s, what we've learned since, Would that have been enough to sustain the same conclusions that were necessary for the Federal Convention to take the form and the course it did? Well, I think maybe not, and uh, here's why. Uh, One could say, after all, that it wasn't so surprising that the states had not done as well or not acted as conscientiously or scrupulously as they should have, either during the war or since. After all, it was a long war. It was a war that strapped the resources of government more than any any event had in the previous century and a half of American existence. There had been nothing like the Revolutionary War that Americans had had to deal with. Uh, and similarly, because that was the case, it wasn't. It might not be so surprising that in the mid-1780s, the states were not doing as much as they could to comply with national, national recommendations and resolutions. After all, they were still recovering from the war. It had been a long war, and we were still recovering from it. So you could say there would be offsetting empirical arguments, right? That, you know, that because, the, because the circumstances were so, were so exceptional, because it had been a long war, and the recovery was so difficult, one should not leap to radical conclusions about whether or not a system of voluntary compliance over the long run would be so bad. But, and this is you know, a big but, you know, this is a major qualification, if you make the transition that Madison does and say that these problems are inherent in the very structure of federalism under the Confederation, if you say that is, then no system of voluntary compliance will ever work, A, because the states really are differently situated, so we can't expect them to have an equal stake in enforcing national measures. B, there are always going to be state-based politicians, you know, Patrick Henry and his ilk, uh who are going to find it in their partisan interest, to abuse and misuse the national government and see the free rider problem even where we all agree suspicions about whether others are going to comply will make it likely that the system is going to be vulnerable susceptible to uh, recurring breakdowns that's to say if you can abstract from the empirical from the evidence and say the evidence is only examples of the problem that we really understand now to be structural, inherent, in the very situation that voluntary compliance represents, then it seems to me you have a much more powerful, demonstrative, conclusive argument. And that brings me back to how I'm now trying to think about Madison's mind, how I'm trying to read it. Uh, so if I'm right about this, that there is a latent game theoretic element in Madison's thinking, that somehow he stumbled upon formulations. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the prisoner's dilemma. I'm not sure it represents a Nash equilibrium uh, and, and so on. But nevertheless, you know, this is, you know, it is recognizably a version of the free rider problem. It does seem to partake of recognizable aspects of game theory. And it does, and it arises in a context where Madison himself is not trying to persuade anybody else. He's trying to persuade himself what is the right course of action. Then it seems we come to see Madison's remarkable properties in, in, in a rather different light. Uh, when Madison writes these documents in the spring of 1787, he has an audience of one. It's himself. He's trying to sort out the problems. He's trying to work out his agenda. He's theorizing, not for the purposes of answering the conventional arguments that might argue, you know, that say you could never have an extended national republic. He's trying to figure out What's wrong, and what do we do about it? He's theorizing for purposes of analysis. He's abstracting not to persuade an audience, not to deal with the rhetorical conventions of the time, to make sense of a problem. So that's what strikes me as being, you know, in the end, so remarkable uh, about Madison's mind at this remarkable juncture in American politics and in his own political career. It seems to me, as I try to envision this sometimes, the empirical and the abstract lobes in the Madison brain. I mean, you know, you know. Of course, we all know Einstein's brain is traveling around the country, you know, with that, that doctor who keeps kind of taking slices off and giving it to different people for analysis. I mean, you know, Madison's brain, fortunately, has not been subjected to the same kind of abuse. But sometimes, these days, I imagine if we could, you know, somehow visualize Madison's brain, we would see a brain in which the, you know, the empirical and the abstracting lobes. Assuming such lobes exist, were in a relatively equal balance and, and, and symmetry, and uh, you know played upon one another in an extraordinarily fruitful uh, and productive way. Um, so this is you know I'd rather I mean there are many other things of course I can say about Madison's mind, and I've, I've, there are certainly other documents of his that uh, you know that that I've that I've read and tried to comment on with with some care. Uh, but it seems to me that this document, uh, because it is the one that sets his agenda. For Philadelphia, because it demonstrates how he uses these, these these qualities of his mind for purposes of planning political action. You know, not of justifying it to others, but figuring out what is the course of action that ought to be taken. It really gives us our most revealing uh, insight uh, into his remarkable mental faculties. Uh, and if, in fact, I'm even half right to say that there is a latent element uh, of game theory that's uh, that's going on here, and I think I am half, at least half right to say that then it seems to be uh, appropriate to, to recognize Madison not only as Princeton's first graduate student, uh, but as the first of a very distinguished and evident line of game theorists. Thanks very much. Thank you. I think you will be willing to take questions. And when you hear them, would you repeat Sure. Something? Um, I'll just outdo the I'll just outdo the business up here, so please. I'll go to my office on the English at the beginning, and I just read a chapter about the experience in Princeton. I've experienced in Princeton and the copy book. There was only one
3: section of the copy book that was left. and You can see people right now. They were oppressed by the rest. Who
4: I've never heard of even on a French teacher. Right.
2: Whoa. Well okay. <laughs> the question the question if I got it is I'm gonna call on Ketchum himself to answer this one. <laughs> but since he's over here. Um, the question is that Masson's commonplace uh uh book from his Princeton days uh has uh records passages from from Dureton. Um, and isn't Machiavelli a game theorist as well? I I um well, now you're not really pushing my knowledge, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how to answer this. I mean, it seems to me the, the problem that, that, that I'm wrestling with is that it's... It, as I understand the, the history of political ideas, it is possible to look at any of a number of writers, in especially in the early modern period, and, and Hobbes would certainly fit this as well as Machiavelli, and recognize that there are implicitly and latently... Uh, Analytical moves being made that we could bring under a rubric of what I'm loosely you know, of game theory, but it seems to me, you know, you may feel different about this it seems to me that's quali- that's different from saying that the concept itself, in in a kind of self way, self-articulate way, is available. That's to say. You know, today, if we, if we want to do it, we say, "Well, we know what the free rider problem is. We know what the prisoner's dilemma is. You know, we have all these different examples. You know, we, we some of us, not I, know what Nash equilibrium is, uh, and we can, you know, we can therefore reason accordingly." Seems to me what's interesting about Madison is that he's stumbling upon it without quite having the, you know, the, the conceptual apparatus there in the formal, avowed sense. So that he could simply pull it down off the shelf and say, "Well, let's plug it in here." So you know, I mean, it's my impression—you know—but maybe I'm wrong about this. But it's my impression that he's kind of developing it intuitively, or he's intuiting it, in effect, as he tries to take a step back from the empirical data and say, "Well, gee, let's—you know—let's just think: Is this, you know, is, is this an empirical problem or is this a structural problem?" Excuse me. The closer you get to a structural problem, then the closer you are to a kind of game-theoretic formulation. Um, and also the question, I mean, here's the other thing that I, that I, that I think is, is, is interesting about Madison, but it relates to um, problems of making sense of, of, of his agenda and others' agenda in general. Um, you know, Gordon, Gordon Woods wrote about this, and, and I've certainly thought about it a lot. There's the whole, what we call the whole vexatious, or I think I used this phrase once, the whole vexatious question of influence, Right. How much do we derive from what we read? And how does our reading inform our thinking? And what is it that makes it actionable? You know, what is it that allows us to convert things we read on the printed page into principles or ideas or concepts that we apply in practice? Well, one of the things that makes Madison so interesting is that there's no question that he was deeply and widely read and obviously a a deeply reflective and critical reader. You know, kept some notes. I would, too bad he didn't keep a lot more, but, uh, you know, uh, retained a lot. And yet, you know, when you go through his work, um, there are a few citations to uh, existing authorities. Of course, the 18th century notions of citation and attribution and, and borrowing and plagiarism for that matter were completely different from our own. But I also think that it may reflect a certain, well, I want to say a certain kind of confident bias on Madison's part that book learning after 1776 didn't matter quite as much as it had previously. I'll give you an example of this. From 1793, uh, Madison gets involved in a big dispute with Hamilton over the foreign policy powers of the presidency. And it has to do with the extent of executive you know the, the extent whether the power of the, the power of the president of foreign affairs is inherently executive as a matter of prerogative as in the British crown. And so Madison reads one of Hamilton's essay and figures out you know and Hamilton's drawing upon um, Locke and Montesquieu and their discussions of the British Constitution. And Madison spends a little time going through Hamilton's analysis and then he says, let us quit a field of inquiry. Which is more likely to perplex than to decide, and then he goes on. He makes a few further observations, saying that after all, both these guys are really partial to the British constitution, and anyhow, we have a lot more experience, um, you know, since 1776 than they had, and we don't have to reason on the basis of those those things anymore. So I, it goes back to that quote, that quotation from John Adams, uh, that you know, the the what Hannah Arendt once called the thinking and the doing, which went into. The American Revolution—the sense, if not of making the world anew, at least of having this remarkable experiment to engage in—this is what makes, I think, the problem so interesting. Because here, on the one hand, you have a guy who's, you know, who is deeply read, deeply reflective, very critical about what he reads, uh, well-read, uh, but also really willing to draw from experience. And thinking the experience the Americans have had since 1776 is much better than most of the book learning that you can acquire. I mean, I think the same thing shows up, you know, when Madison talks about the celebrated Montesquieu. As in, you know, Federalist 48, 47, 48, where he starts talking about the separation of powers. I've always thought his tongue was in his cheek. You know, it's that it's, you know, like, like Montesquieu was a smart guy, you know, and, but, and we had to recognize his authority. But, uh, you know, that was then and this is now. And he's kind of a, kind of a problem. We have to kind of, he's a problem we have to deal with. You have to kind of co-opt him or expropriate him or neutralize him. It's not that we're really learning that much from him. He's just kind of a problem we have to deal with. Sir? Do you see Madison going through
4: the same
2: process with the Virginia Resolutions? Uh, do I see Madison going through the same process with the Virginia Resolutions? No, I see him going through a different process. Um, I've, I've written in length, well, not at length about the Virginia Resolutions, but um, it seems to me that if, this comes back to the consistency problem that I mentioned at the very beginning, which is you know, how do we get from the Nationalists in the late 1780s to the architect of a compact theory, states' rights compact theory of the Constitution, 1798. Um, I don't see the consistency problem as a big one. And the reason for that is that it seems to me when it came to um, thinking about um, sources of constitutional disequilibrium, sources of concentrated power that would be a danger to preserving the constitutional system, I think Madison was decidedly empirical. Um, From 1787 to about 1793, I think he was convinced, throughout this period, that's the period when he's framing the Constitution and the first couple terms in Congress, I think he was convinced that the greatest source of disequilibrium, you know, the improperly concentrated power in the Constitution, would come from the House of Representatives. And then in 1793... He starts to move away from that position. And the reason is that after 1793, issues of foreign policy come to the fore. And they force him to recognize that, in fact, the executive has all kinds of advantages that Madison had never appreciated it would be able to wield. And, in fact, the executive turns out to be much more efficacious and much more potent than he had ever anticipated. And I think think his thinking starts to adjust accordingly. And similarly, with the question of the states, now this, this is a little bit trickier. You know, Madison had argued in, in The Federalist that, you know, the danger of any one faction taking over the entire national government, you know, because of the extended republic and all the, the different interests it would embrace, that it would always be much less likely that a faction could take control of the national government uh, than it could of the states. But by 1798, if, if you're reasoning empirically, the fact is the Federals control both houses of Congress, the presidency, and the judiciary. Uh, and it's engaged in the and the Federal government is is engaged in in a course of action which Madison could plausibly think was it was unconstitutional, especially the Sedition Act with its apparent violation of uh, the First Amendment and so on. So I think at that point, it's, um, you know, but also for strategic reasons, Madison has no alternative but to appeal to the states. The interesting thing about this, though, is if you go back to Federalist 45, Federalist 46, where back in 1788, where Madison is discussing the relative advantages, uh, political advantages of the state and national governments, in a sense he basically lays out this the scenario of action that he's, that he's acting on in 1798. He says, if should there, I mean, he doesn't think this is going to happen, but he says, in effect, should should there, in fact, be a, uh, come a time when the national government is captured by a faction, the existence of the states as independent uh, jurisdictions with a political voice will serve as, you know, as a kind of answer, you know, serve as, serve as a response. So there's a kind of curious sense, I think, in which, you know, Madison's ability to think comprehensively about um, the whole political system, even in ex-ante, back in 1788, is being acted on a decade later. It wasn't what he expected, or intended, or anticipated, but he at least contemplated the possibility. Sir?
4: mind Madison was critically informed by his studies under John Witherspoon to convey Calvin's principles
2: about Presbyterian form of government. Um I should be very diplomatic about this. Uh, the question is uh, <laughs> the question is the extent of President Witherspoon's influence on Madison, especially in uh, transmitting um Calvinist principles to him. I think there are two questions here. Uh, one is one might de- one might have to deal with the very elusive question of Madison's religious convictions, uh, and then the second might involve uh, asking to what extent do Madison's assumptions about human nature reflect, in in in, in a distilled way, uh, a kind of Calvinist sensibility. Uh, and I think you're probably asking more about the second than the first, but I think I think one should say something about the first as well. Um, I'm one of those who incline. You know, Masson's very mysterious about his religious convictions, uh, very very private about them. I think it's plausible to say that he probably left Princeton still as an Orthodox Christian. There's a little discussion in you know in his private letters in the early 1770s to William Bradford. Would suggest that he's least could at least contemplate the ministry. You know, you know, Madison goes back to Virginia. He's completely bored, and he doesn't know what to do with his life. And he's envious of Bradford because Bradford's in Philadelphia, and he's at loose ends. And he's he's kind of a hypochondriac and thinks he may not be long for this world. Um, So there's a little. I think there's a little evidence that Madison kind of returned here, still an orthodox Christian in some sense. My my own sense is, after the, the the he quietly let go of that and move, move towards a kind of 18th century deism thereafter. Uh, so that if you, you know, so that I, I, I would be reluctant to, you know, to say that, you know, Madison's sense of um, human sinfulness or human frailty has that explicitly religious or you know, doctrinal core a foundation. On the other hand, you know the second part of this, you know it's plausible to say that mass and skepticism about human nature is not inconsistent with the Calvinist notion of, of, of human fallibility uh, in a general way. Um, but uh, I would be puzzled to know how you, you, know, how, you know, how you actually document it. I mean, the fact is, Madison is extremely reticent to talk about religious convictions, his own. I mean, he never talks about his own religious convictions at all after the early 1770s. He never, he never gives you a glimmer of a clue as to what they might be. And you can read that in a couple of ways. You, just, you could just say he believes so much in the privacy of conscience that he wants to make an example of it. Or you could you could be somewhat more skeptical and say he probably was moving away from religious convictions and just would not want to... You know, kind of testify to it. So, in a general sense, you know, the proposition seems to me to be plausible. Like, I don't know how you document it. I mean, for a story, I don't know how, I'm not quite sure I know how you would actually corroborate it. But Professor Ketchum wants to add something to this, so. I think we're this question to the earlier one about Madison's commonplace book. Uh, one of the most interesting documents in Princeton
4: library are the notes that the students took from Witherpoon's lectures. Very high magazine was And there's commentary not notes on government. And the interesting thing you think about them to me is that they're a paraphrase of Aristotle's politics. That is, he's interested in, in how good government can resolve when it's by one or doing any time. And he has a connect to me a, an important and <clears throat> basis in his thinking about government, which and I, I think, he, he learned that from Whitterspoon too. Uh, Whitterspoon was giving those lectures. One of the students notes is 1772, Madison was still here. And I, I think it's uh, a very important insight and reflection on the nature of the thinking about government, even though Whitterspoon didn't, at least the student didn't write job of Whitterspoon in state of America. I don't think Madison, necessarily had read it. Uh, sorry, yeah. But with the sort of introduction the government in these lectures had that basis. And it seems to me that's very important in understanding where medicine starts from, even though there's no documentation of this at all. Two, I have, uh, just like the commonplace book that you mentioned, uh, when we first looked at it, there's a section of it that's headed uh, MOMT, MONT. I thought, well, that's probably moduscule.
0: That's what we all all we'll look back to. Turns out there are notes from Montaigne.
2: <laughs> uh, so you so about any older traditions of government Jack, do you want to take one more question? Sure. Uh, sir. Mm-hmm. Do I, do I have any comment on Madison's theorizing about states' rights as it, to constitutions other than around the world? No, actually, the short answer is no. <laughs> I, mean, I could answer the first part of your question, which is, I think, you know, the subject, I mean, how we thought about states' rights and sovereignty as it applies to our constitutions, which is also, I think, the subject of Pauline Mayer's talk, which, God willing, she'll give this afternoon. Um... It does seem to me that Madison understands that something that we don't, (laughs) that sovereignty is a useless concept for Americans. Uh, Madison, I mean, my basic argument on this is that um, I think Madison felt he could have solved the sovereignty problem. Sovereignty sovereignty means that in every government, there has the conventional definition. There has to be some ultimate source of authority. That's the conventional 18th century definition. It's ultimate, it's absolute, it's irresistible, it has to reside in some one place. Madison understands correctly that Americans basically destroy the concept of sovereignty. Sovereignty does not make sense in a federal system. Federalism divides the powers of sovereignty across jurisdictions. James Wilson says, you know, in 1787 that well, no, we we preserve the unity of sovereignty in the United States because the here the people are going to be sovereign. But that concept doesn't make any sense. I mean, to say the people are the ultimate source of authority is is nice for theoretical purposes, but analytically it doesn't have any use. So I think Madison understands that that sovereignty was that sovereignty was not a useful way to think about federalism. And he might have had one solution to that. You know, Madison's pet proposal was to give the national government a veto over all state laws. If that had been the case, there would have been a clear location of sovereignty in the United States. But he lost that proposal. We, and we got judicial review instead, which is a much more muddled kind of, kind of concept. And I think Madison comes to realize over the course of his career that the problem with sovereignty is that it doesn't make sense anymore as, as, a, as an analytical concept, but it's still useful for rhetorical purposes and it's dangerous. You know, the, 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 the task of the problem of preserving federalism, I think Madison thinks, is to work out on a case-by-case basis which government is best qualified to exercise which powers. The problem with sovereignty is it's an appeal to absolutes, and when you appeal to absolutes, you eliminate the kind of middle ground and the room for nuance and descriptive precision that federalism really requires. So I think Madison comes to understand by the end of his life, of course the end of his life comes after the nullification controversy, uh, you know, of 1832, he comes to understand that sovereignty now is, for Americans, is a very dangerous thing because it's an appeal to absolutes which rules out any middle ground for accommodation. The real problem of federalism is, is to, is to figure out in its particulars. Or, you know, the way I like to put it, the truth of federalism is in its details. An appeal to sovereignty gives you no room for details. It's an appeal to absolutes and therefore it's a formula for
0: confrontation as opposed to conciliation. Before asking you to join me in in thanking Jack so much for this uh, discovery of Madison as the first of Princeton's game theorists, Uh, let me welcome those who came in late uh, and ask that you be sure to pick up your registration badges, which will be key to uh, entering this uh, hall later in the day. We're going to take a break now, and our second session will resume promptly at 1045, 1045. For those of you who weren't here earlier, uh, Pauline Mayer has been delayed in arriving here, so we're transposing Jennifer Nadolski's paper that will be given at uh, 10.45 and hope that Pauline will be here herself to give her paper this afternoon. But first, let's thank Jack very much for a wonderful paper.
2: Yeah, no, I know, I know. It's good he's on the board, because Stanford's always had such positive
0: leadership. That's yeah. true. But he he expressed
2: uh, yeah. uh, regrets. Right. Well, so he said he worked something. You were actually I Yeah, I
3: went to Cornell, so yeah, I gave yeah, it. Yeah. So, right. You got a version of it. Okay. So take your course, How far is it nearby? It's in the okay, Yeah, take him nip right through
2: the board. So I don't, I don't need my jacket, or? Uh, no. I'm not very tired.
3: That's wonderful.
1: Sure, absolutely.
3: Uh, Where's my wrist?
0: Stan
1: stand is Standard. here. He Did was sitting. Know. He was sitting right there.
0: And, but he's ready to do.
1: It. Yeah. I was going to wait for Jack, but he may just get held up. So.
3: Oh.
1: Yeah, you know, I say, you know, he John wants to know if you want me to whisk you or leave you. No, he, I should. No, why don't you
2: leave me, and I'll just. I mean, I should answer questions. Okay. So. All um, right. You know, I haven't thought about this, he doesn't. He doesn't talk much about the presence afterwards. But, uh, I've never really thought about this, but you know, he, uh, I'm sure there must be some documents there, but it's not necessarily a major
3: source of his impressions.
2: He talks a lot about the presidency in you know, the 1790s when it's coming to grips with its you know, political potential, which he did not have appreciated in anyway. He talks about the war powers, but I, I don't recall much. I mean, to be honest, I have to go back and look think about it. But I don't recall much of you know, it. Like you know, and these much more interesting kind of questions of federalism and the other kinds of, you know, and the kind of the contemporary,
3: <laughs> the contemporary controversies of But it's not
2: like he retires to Montpelier and talks about the White House. About
3: writing his memoirs about about my life as president.
2: So it's not, it doesn't seem in the subject. I mean, I think the most recent things he says about the president the back in the 1790s, when he's finally, when he's first coming to the grips with the family. And it's a much more potent institution than we ever imagined it to be. No, I mean, his problem there, I mean, if you look at his presidency, the problem is, I mean, his presidency has a lot of criticism. The best you can say for it, you know, because the weakness of his leadership The best you can say for it is he felt in opposition to his, or in conjunction with his belief that the Federalists have made the presidency into much more of a prerogative institution than it should have been, he felt he had to give an example of what a Republican presidency ought to look like. So that that's why, for example, even in terms of the war message of 1812, Madison, you know, I think, President sends a war message up to Congress, He would kind of take the lead role, and you know, in, in having it approved. But actually, you know, Monroe wins the Civil War and it's and, you know, it, you
3: know it's,
2: it's, it's this massive problem. Like he, uh, for Congress, will decide. Congress has the constitutional authority, and you know, so he'll, he'll do what he's supposed to do, but no more. So you could
3: say he's trying to set an example of what a, a deep prerogative. <coughs> okay. Right. right, okay, 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 right. Then we'll get together. Yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Now there's bloom this far uh, The rest, I mean, there's the political correspondence for the, the executive years, like 181,
2: 1817, is actually quite disappointing because it's all uh he's the the so preoccupied with diplomacy. Diplomacy so I mean throughout the whole period, the diplomacy is so wicked <coughs> the you know the kinds of things you know you you have you know, for the 1790s, eight, seventy nineties, they're kind of disappeared. But then when it, when it goes back to Montpelier, uh, you know, eighteen seventeen. Okay, you know, executive years are over and he's his political correspondence well, just really opens up again. You know, it's not, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, he's not, the diplomacy stuff, so the diplomacy's dead, you know, so to speak. Because, you know, there are not diplomatic issues. So You know, so it's it's much more political, much more reflective. You know, you generally
3: optimistic? There's things unfolding. So well, um,
2: Madison was not an optimist. You know, Madison was deeply concerned. You know, um, there's a wonderful book about his later years by Drew McCoy called The Lasting Fathers. Which is, you know, which really gives a very strong quote you know, what a deep conservative man was. About. I mean, he was, deep, you know, a deep conservative. I mean, he was in some ways, he was, he was, he was, you know, he, he had doubts about democracy. You know, he was committed to it in principle, but he had doubts about it in practice. Uh, he worried about the concentration of property. You know, he knew he didn't have any effective solution for the slavery problem. Uh, you know, I think he's a bit more close. I mean, Jefferson gets very depressed. Because I think Madison, Madison gives me something more philosophical. Uh,
3: but, uh, so, <coughs> I'm not sure optimism or Madison. Is. Oh, actually, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have a bunch of ideas yeah, exactly. I mean, you thank you so much? I think so. I mean, it depends how I
2: feel, but I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hi. Oh. Right. Right. A few weeks. Okay. Good. Thanks. You refer to three letters that he wrote in
4: March right, 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 of Right. Right. Jefferson. you Washington. And who's Washington. Washington. Washington.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, you have to read it also. If you read the letters in conjunction with the memo, it, They they explain some oblique passages. especially when you get to the end of the memo, there's the very last paragraph is a very confusing one about. uh, uh, I I won't even try to summarize it, but it's the decideratum and I don't know. Anyway, it's very oblique, but if you put it down next to the letter, you realize what Madison is talking about is his proposed veto on state laws because he uses the same phrasing, but gives you the context of what he's thinking about.
3: So yeah, okay. Jack
2: Ray Cove, yeah. Ray Cove, yeah.
3: yeah. Right. I want to get straight on the right. Are you guys you got, are you
2: the guy from C SPAN? Oh you know Mora and I are good buddies. Mora Pierce. Mora Mora. Mora? Do you know what she for she Oh, oh you're just you're just a we're local gamma group.
3: okay Okay, okay, okay.
2: okay. 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 Just want
3: to get, so we're juggling people. Right, yeah, I
2: understand. This, yeah, right? no, that was me. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Madison's thought about sovereignty is that it's, I mean, it has to do with, I mean, what I was trying to say is somewhat confused right <coughs> there, at the end, it's, much, it's really confined to the domestic
3: spirit.
2: But trying to saying, the sovereignty Yeah. yeah. Um, but Madison has an essay on universal peace. It's the one thing I think of where he, but I hate to go back, here. I know I had a couple it's, it's in my collection of his writings, um, which is the closest it comes to discussing this. But, um, no, I mean his principle, you know, sovereignty, you know, by the, well, by Adam life, you know, the idea, you know, is, well, it sometimes goes back to the gender resolutions, but is, is, he, is it, are the states still sovereign? is the union sovereign, is it we the people of the United States, does that mean one national sovereignty or are the states still the essential sovereign units who are compacted to transfer limited powers? Well, I think Madison understood that you didn't want to put, that if you put, pushing it was dangerous. That was the point of my last response is that the way you want to talk about federalism is in a particularistic term, it's a case by case, issue by issue, power by power. If you start throwing around, you know these these big, you know these big concepts like national sovereignty or state sovereignty, then you're just yeah. got a zero sum game, confrontational.
3: Systemic
2: yeah. um, Well, in a certain sense, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah,
3: yeah.
2: And that's a universal piece. Yeah, in, I'm pretty sure it's. Uh, I think I put it my in the writings. I'm not 100% sure that. But I think it's there.
4: So. Mm. Oh, really? Who are you?
3: Art my God. What did you do
2: to
4: be? The what? Oh. Mr. and Mrs. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah there was a lady. I was Nadine Clark? Nadine, Nadine, of course, was yeah. the department chairman. Right,
3: right. And you were there. She's one of the one that talked about Incipient Sippy and Creighton on, on,
2: on the Leningrad subway, the Boston subway. Right? Is that right?
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: I, I do remember. Oh. I, I came in as I said, I was an M.A.T. Uh-huh. program at Northwestern, uh-huh. uh-huh. and then went off and ended up being mostly at the University of oh. And uh, <laughs> I stood out there was one other guy—he was a lanky fellow, and he was much more athletic. We you weren't terribly built.
3: Um, was this started. the American Problems course,
2: or the, no, uh, it was, it was the first year? There was
4: a. Great big, uh, hundred, at
2: least
3: hundred
4: dollars
2: Yeah. yeah. And it must have been that first year. It's me- no. Yeah. You
3: were just very substantial even at that age. I take back a different like, oh, oh, time.
2: Oh, that's nice. Time, you know. good <laughs>
3: well, your dad was yeah, my dad taught circle. Yeah. Six- yeah. 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 Not, you know, distributed. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's like great oh, that's it, yeah. Success. Success. I'm not yeah. 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 Yeah Hi, Lynn. How are you doing? Fine. How are
2: you today? Is there a contingent here or just... Uh... Uh, well, I
3: came to talk the Dan's Madison Museum Oh, hi. Uh, right. Here. right.
1: Right. Right. Maybe taking to a test for the backwaters of March.
3: No. Well, it was it I know. I'm finished. <laughs> oh, now, come on. <laughs> It's also a virtue. Process, good, uh, good. You know, good. Watch the interstate. I know it's a problem. Oh, right, 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 right. It's causing your haircut. <laughs> Come on.
2: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Well, yeah, that's kind of stuff we tend not to know at all, right? You know, so, yeah.
3: yeah. Check. Testing. Check. One, two... I think I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Right? I I'd forgotten that, yeah. <laughs>
2: But, uh, but so what's what's the relation to Madison?
3: Well, I wondering no, 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 what
2: uh, kind no. of that I don't know, the problem with Madison is you know, you know he you know, he believed as a matter of principle that um, you know biography was essentially a public thing. You know, it was a record of a public life. And the reality is we just don't you know, the I mean maybe Ketchum has better senses than I do. I, and so I see to me the private stuff remains deeply elusive in a way that, you know, it's not true for Jefferson or John Adams. So, you know, his correspondence has, has, a, diff, has, has a different emotional timbre, and I, I don't know how much Donnelly destroyed and what else was there, you know, in terms of more person in me It seems to me that part of it is always going to be elusive. I mean, it's too early. We, we have to wait another few weeks. Yeah. Well, I flying here, you know, so, you know, who wants to start with ice cream. <laughs> <Adapted. laughs> yeah. yeah, good to see you. Yeah. So, well, I you, I'm really picking up. I mean, yesterday I felt, I mean, when I got, I mean, it took me two and a half hours to get here from Newark. I
3: mean,
2: yeah. I tell, you, I tell you, now I actually feel, I mean, I was thinking I would go home and go, go back after this. Um, but no I'm I, I, mean, I think I've picked up so I think you know I think I can stick this out. So it's so, tomorrow i supposed to go in mean, and have you know, uh, year, you know five from, I don't hear, you are and I've got this election book going, but it's the yeah, unfinished election in two thousand, but it's, I'm editing it and very here the lineup is includes very fam. No, Craig no Craig, cra Craig Craig and Pam yeah and uh, I've got seven chapters. I've been on college. But anyway, so I'm supposed so to go in and have lunch tomorrow with Larry and our editor for basic. That's, that's the next thing I have to decide if I need to look for. But Jack, now that I'm here, I'm.
3: Huh? <laughs> well, sitting down, you know. Yeah. Oh, God, no. Well, like this, I guess I just, I mean, I just, once I got here, you had a flight class coming in and like, yeah. I mean, two like hours in the car, you know? I was just kind of peeping, creeping along, you know. And just got no you know. And then I just, so I, like, I just went to bed, and I was kind of, you know, I, mean, I was gonna, I didn't even watch a yard. I was gonna watch a yard, you know, kind of. But I was so groggy. But I, you know,
2: but I so I just got in bed at 7:30. And I hadn't eaten since breakfast. I and mean, actually, I think I'd
3: pick him up. There's, Sure. Yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, actually, I want to hear about your program.
2: Yeah. I mean, Amy, tell me a bit about it, you know. yeah. Have do
3: Dewar?
2: That'd be great. Yeah, just play whatever there, you know. That's a good
3: question.
2: You know, I've never looked at that. You know, um, yeah. But well, not every other. But I mean, certainly, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a big deal in Japan. I mean, I, I mean, it's a bigger issue in Germany, it seems to be The provinces in Germany, the lander are. Kind more like American states than uh, where the two pictures is, Japan.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I I'll tell you a funny
2: story about that. I mean, there's a there's a guy named Don Lutz, who's a political theorist in Houston, who does a lot of work in kind of comparative constitutions. And he was giving some seminar in, in Prague before um, you know before the Czech before Czechoslovakia broke up. He said, uh, I think he's he made passing reference to the Anti-Federalists, but, you know, primarily the Federalists. He said during the breaks, he said the the Slovaks would sign him up and say, tell us more about the Anti-Federalists. You know, they, they sound interesting. So, you know. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have any. I mean, I've never
2: looked at it to, to, to tell you what the answer would be. I mean, it, it'd be interesting to know what was the academic back you know, the academic backgrounds of the Americans that were involved in, especially I think the Japanese constitution more than the German one. Right? Um, but I, I just don't. It's after my period. Yeah. Right.
3: Uh.
2: Yeah,
3: right. No, the
2: teaching. Right. Being in Washington. Right. Right. Yeah, I've had. You know, not for a year or two, but yeah, I've had uh, half a dozen or so.
3: Well, the planes are flying, so yeah, I'm happy to come in i mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: No, I know. And that would be... I mean, I think that would be
3: consistent with what I said yeah, that, that he, that he might have been given some to All I know is that once, you know... I mean, after that course, one, you just don't see any references you know, to I mean Religion
4: has a problem. Religion is an issue.
3: Why do you say there? I'm not sure what he is. yeah, Being
2: well, I'm not so sure about that, I don't you
3: think... <coughs> yeah.
2: yeah. well, I don't, you know, Just go back and take a look at his, the document's called the Detached Memorandum, which are written sometime I think in the early 1820s, uh, where he
3: reflects on some of this stuff.
2: Whereas, it's salary, where he's example, the auditions some length. There shouldn't be congressional chapl- chaplains. There shouldn't be chaplains in the army, and that's pretty—that's pretty strong stuff. Well, by birth, yeah. I mean by birth. People. The question is, yeah. But then the question is later: what is he? What is he later if anything? That's what you know. That's what We don't really know, but I'm skeptical he was anything.
3: <laughs> we well I just I, it's just one up to ship and turn, or using one, one, one item as something. No, i no, no, I just think I mean thinking of thing thinking about the kinds of essentials of depending on what the rules are going game. Uh, something uh, I'm find, uh, so I want to sign and decide to figure Oh stuff. sure. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's a big, uh, and it shows it, it's modern origins in here. It's modern origins in here. Yeah. And I, not, I mean, I just, I just don't realize because I, because that's a, yeah, one of the um, It seems a lot to put this on me as well, to analyze, you know, how the rules do? And I like could say the free rider problem is clearly I mean I used to be
2: a big skeptic about it. And I used to be very anti-theoretic, but it seems to me half a the It seems to me that <laughs> that's really what matters in one way or
3: another out doing, you know. So okay. i Okay, and me. I know you've mm-hmm. read, period, right, a of your, of your books. Well, I have a lot it's of young... my method. <laughs> 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 agree with oh, that's okay. You, yeah. know, you okay. put it forward very nice. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, as as I'm at the top of my form. Well, you're <laughs> young. I'm young. I'm 50. I'm going 50. 50. 54. I'm not that young. <laughs> That was the only i uh, Right, yeah, we're going to. It go for a three yeah, hours the airport. Exactly. I couldn't get lost. Oh, yeah, that's uh, fine, you but go. you know what? I do have some
5: water. So, um, uh, yeah.
3: May be a little right, 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 right. I'm glad I made it through. Yeah, yeah. I did, yeah.
2: Well, I had notes, Gordon. And I, you know, I, I never read a text. Do you read text? Yeah, I, or, uh, I can't stand
3: to read a text.
6: Well, it yeah. was a great idea
3: yeah. to, to work from no, that. Um, yeah, I think we're just Okay, I'll get off we're the stage. going to
4: send Oh, yeah, no, that's perfect. It helps me. i okay. will
3: uh, no, speak to her.
4: I'm
3: just
5: going to go get fresh out the water. Yeah, she should
3: be able to speak standing up.
5: She doesn't, nice. have, to. She doesn't have to. What if you two. Uh, Right, I thought it worked well, given the style.
6: Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we'll totally be fine. They're just dragging in anyway. And we've got plenty of time, I think. It's a terrific right? I, I think I'm going to say it just a fabulous conference. Yeah, right. I wish
0: I wish you'd give some commentary. Well, I'm going to say something.
5: This works fine, right?
0: Yeah. This is yours. <laughs> I think Jack's the problem. Oh, okay.
5: But we're
0: not, um, no, you are not assigned
5: right. to so no.
4: We've got unions, you know, to
0: get people to settle down
6: a bit. So, when it's over. Everybody applauds. And. Me? You know, I don't see any reason for me to come up to after your talk. No. You'll we'll feel the, the applause, applause, and then you feel the question. And then you just and then then break,
3: and break it off, yeah. off. So you'll come back down after. This yeah.
0: I'll just call people
3: down.
0: She couldn't get in last night, but she's hoping for a be better day. Well, she, she's switching with Jennifer at 2.30 if she gets in. Otherwise,
5: will be here. Oh, good, thanks.
6: Joe coming with his new project that he was
5: going Let me
0: ask uh, our audience, please, to find their seats.
5: He keeps envisioning as the book. That's the problem, right? It's got capital letters. Um, Because
0: I've got the same problem.
5: (laughs) He's he's now already embarking on a new project. Um, Which I think is on uh, kind of do-gooding NGOs like the Doctors Without Borders and so on. What do they do?
0: Once again, I want to welcome, especially those who have arrived uh, very recently, there are name tags that will be critical uh, for the rest of the day if you've pre-registered for the conference. Uh, I think all of you uh, know that uh, Pauline Meyer uh, was unable to get here yesterday thanks to the storm. We hope she will be here Uh, for the afternoon session. We've transposed the paper uh, that was to be given at 2.30 to this session, Uh, and so let me invite people to take their seats. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce Stanley Katz, uh, who will introduce our speaker. Stanley was here in the History Department for many years and then went off to head the American Council of Learned Societies for a decade, uh, and we're all delighted that he's back with us in Princeton. Stanley, thank you,
6: John, and welcome to uh, to everyone. It's my very pleasant uh, duty to introduce Jennifer Nadelsky, uh, who will give the uh, give the next uh, talk. Um, Jenny and I have known one another a long time now. Um, because uh, when she was doing her PhD in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, I was teaching in the law school and in the history department uh, there. And I was the uh, third uh, in a succession of people who directed her uh, quite wonderful uh, dissertation. And it's a it's, it's sort of a sad happy story because uh, my two predecessors passed away before Jenny um... finished her dissertation and when I I agreed to take this on, she points out that one of them actually left the university but he did die and not long after uh, I asked her whether uh, she could immunize me from this fate and she has here I am Uh, but she she did a brilliant dissertation there as she uh, had been a brilliant undergraduate at the University of Rochester where she graduated with highest distinction, uh, a little bit before that, and uh, she spent some time in Canada at uh, Dalhousie University, and then came here um, as an assistant professor. And she was here for five or six years in the uh, in the early '80s, when it was a pleasure to be a colleague of hers. And now, uh, then at that point, she and uh, another um, colleague, Joe Cairns, whom she had the wit to marry have moved up to the University of Toronto, where uh, Jenny is a professor of uh, of law. She's in the law uh, faculty, but of political science and women's studies as well. Joe is in the political science uh, faculty. And the dissertation that I referred to um, was published subsequently as a book called Private Property and the Limits of American Constitutionalism, the Madisonian Framework, and its legacy, published by Chicago in 1990. And she has a a forthcoming book now, actually she has three forthcoming books uh, at the moment. One uh, that's I think most imminent is called Judgment, Imagination, and Politics, Themes from Kant and Arendt, who was, Hannah Arendt was one of my predecessors in this string that I mentioned, which is an uh, addition that she's bringing out. But she's also working on a book called Law, Autonomy, and the Relational Self, a Feminist Re-envisioning of the Foundations of Law. And I'm told by this sheet, a year after that, a book called Human Rights and Judgment, a Relational uh, Approach. So she's in a very uh, relational mode these days. And I it's, a wonder, it's wonderful to have her here for this. Uh, let me say just briefly that um, for those of us who are on the planning committee and been working on this conference for a year, one always hopes that the people one invites will do well and that the whole program will cohere. Usually that doesn't happen. and um, I can only speak for uh, ha- having heard two so far. This one is better. Uh, than we had hoped. <laughs> I'm really thrilled, and I know that Jenny is going to keep the momentum uh, going. It's, it's just wonderful having uh, so many terrific people here and focusing so narrowly on an important theme. That doesn't happen too often. So it, it really is wonderful. And last night, uh, the conference, of course, is also has its surprises. Um, we, we hadn't thought of strong themes really for it, but it turns out there is a theme here. Uh, And it's that uh, Madison is the founder of a whole lot of things we hadn't thought about um, before. We just discovered that he was the founder of game theory. We know all along, as you will hear this afternoon, uh, that he was the founder of the CIA. And Gordon Wood told us that he was really the founder uh, of a non-existent problem, uh, Das Madison Problem. Uh, And I guess that what I have to say now is that we could think of Jenny's earlier work, I don't know what she will say today, uh, as a different uh, sort of take on uh, Das Madison Problem, um, and which might be called actually Das Beard Problem, uh, because the, the problem that she addressed in her first book was, was James Madison a lackey of the emerging capitalist class in post-revolutionary America? And who knows what you'll say today. <laughs>
5: Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here Um, because, as Stan told you, I live in a law faculty and political science department. I don't usually get to hang out with historians, and it's wonderful to have gathered here together all the people whose work I've admired and Madison. And it's a pleasure, too, for me to turn my mind back to Madison after all these years because I found as I worked with him and listening to, to Jack this morning, he was. A thinker who I always learned something from engaging with. Often, I was trying to figure out why I thought he was wrong, um, what why I disagreed with him. but it always helped me to advance my own thinking, to try to work through his ideas. And so what I'm going to try to do for you today is go back briefly to some of the arguments that I made in my book. To show you how they set the stage for my thinking about what Madison has to tell us about contemporary problems of constitutionalism of, and equality. And just to continue uh, Stanley's theme, you will now learn that Madison was also the founder of Canadian and South African constitutionalism. <coughs> So, I have added a, a subtitle to the title that you see before you on your program, which is called, Taking Up Madison's Challenge. James Madison offered his fellow Federalists a brilliant articulation of what he saw as the central problem of Republican government. How to provide equal protection for the rights of persons, of property, and participation. The challenge he set for himself was to find a truly Republican solution to this Republican problem, some versions of which you've already had hinted at earlier, or to use more contemporary language to find democratic solutions to the potential for democratic injustice. Today, I want to look at both the insights and the limitations of his formulation and to argue that although he and the constitution he helped design did not meet his own challenge, We should take it up. I'll begin with a discussion of how he saw this inherent Republican problem and some of the distortions that arose from the central role of property in his formulation. I'll only gesture at what in some ways is his most important contribution, the institutional solutions he proposed, and his careful inquiry into why and how he thought the institutions would work. Instead, I'll turn after the introduction to this Republican problem in my second section to one of the little-known dimensions of his ideas, his rejection of judicial review, and how I think it can help us think about alternative visions of constitutionalism, alternatives to the vision which has emerged in the United States. And I'll offer the examples of Canada and South Africa as models of constitutionalism that have actually worked out Madison's preliminary vision. In the third section, I'll turn to the issues of participation and equality as a way of assessing how well our republic has met Madison's challenge. And since the Supreme Court has come to be, as Madison never wished it to be, the primary means of securing rights, I'll offer a brief comparative perspective on how American jurisprudence is handling the issue of equality. I'll close with a brief summary of why we should take Madison's aspirations seriously and why we should take up the challenge he offers to all of us. So first, protecting rights and the Republican problem. Of course, now it's a common place that democracies can threaten rights. But at the time of the American Revolution, the focus was on the claim that rights could not be secure without representation. It thus came as a shock and a challenge to the foundations of Republican government, you've heard some of the citations earlier, to find that the duly elected representatives in state governments were passing debtor relief laws and issuing depreciating currency that to men like Madison were as clearly violations of property rights as the theft of a horse. It was becoming increasingly clear that representation itself could not be the solution to the problem of governmental tyranny. It was Madison who offered the most thoughtful formulation of the basic problem that Republican government posed for his fellow Federalists. Good government must be able to protect the rights of persons and the rights of property. In Republican government, those two objectives were in tension with one another because of a third category of rights, the right of all men to be governed only by those laws to which they consent. Of course, today we would qualify his statement as applying only to free men or to white men. The problem was that if political rights were granted equally to all, the rights of persons and the rights of property would not be equally protected. The property could be relied upon to respect the rights of persons in which they also had an interest, but the rights of property would be at risk whenever the sheer numerical advantage of the poor was translated into political power through equal political rights, because the property list had no corresponding interest in the rights of property. And the threat in America was particularly insidious because it took those indirect forms such as depreciating currency rather than direct expropriation. No one denied that property was a basic right, but the propertyless majority would nevertheless demand measures that destroyed the security of property. The problem of providing equal protection for the rights of persons and the rights of property in a manner consistent with Republican principles was, Madison said, the most difficult of all political problems. Now, the source of this problem was, of course, the inequality of property, which he presumed to be the natural outcome of freedom and property. Now, the protection of property was particularly important for many reasons, but it also pointed to the wider problem. Democratic majorities might think it in their interest to pass laws that violated the rights of others. Madison used the person's property participation dilemma as a paradigm of this larger problem and he devoted his constitution-making to trying to find ways to find a truly Republican solution to this inherent Republican problem. That is, he wanted to find a way to secure the rights of all without sacrificing the Republican principle of men's right to participate in the making of the laws that would bind them. Madison's conceptualization of the problem of democratic tyranny has been an enduring gift to American politics and political thought, and indeed to democratic theory everywhere. And his insights into how to solve it, spelled out in the Federalist Papers, are still read today. But the institutional solutions he and his fellow framers came up with did not meet his own compelling challenge. For Madison, the solution that he ultimately crafted rested on a conceptual hierarchy he developed. And that is civil over political rights. Now civil rights in his terms included both the rights of persons and property. Political rights, the rights to participate, the rights to to representation, to have a voice in the laws that would bind you, were, he said, means to the higher end of protecting the civil rights. And as means only, they didn't have intrinsic value. So, if it was necessary to compromise the means to secure the end, the protection of rights, of civil rights, that wouldn't, in the end, involve a compromise of principle. And in my view, this conceptual hierarchy that he created ultimately justified containing the political power and efficacy of the people, not through crude mechanisms like property qualifications for voting or for office, but a careful structuring of institutions that would bring men of substance, responsibility, and property into government. As you heard last night, men like himself, men from Princeton, Harvard, people who could be relied on to make the right judgments. And, of course, it was helpful to have a few key protections against democratic excess at the state level, such as the contract clause. And again, we've heard that he would have liked a national veto, but that didn't come to pass. And these are some of the important institutional details that I'm not going to go into here. At the most general level, Madison's concern with the inherent vulnerability of property led to his insight into the vulnerability of all rights in a democracy. But the focus on property also led to a distortion of this key problem of democratic government. Property is a right that requires collective recognition and enforcement. And in part for that reason, property becomes a compelling yet complex symbol of the potential conflict between the rights of the individual and the power of the collective formed through the state. Property requires the involvement of the collective for definition and defense, the structuring of property law, and it's thus peculiarly vulnerable to collective power. At the same time, that one of the basic purposes of property is to provide a shield for the individual against the intrusions of the collective. Property defines what the society or its representatives, the state, cannot touch in the ordinary course of things. It defines a sphere in which we can act largely unconstrained by collective preferences. But the definition and protection of that sphere must reside with the collective itself, the government that structures property laws. Property thus captures the essence of the problem of self-limiting government. Government has to create its own boundaries to its power. But, as I say, property also distorts this inevitable problem of how to construct self-limiting government. The tension between the individual and the collective is not inevitably about inequality and domination. The protection of unequal property is... In accepting vast economic inequality as a given and the contours of property rights as obvious, Madison was in fact focusing on protecting the rich from the poor, not individuals or minorities from the collective of which they are a part. Madison's formulation turned attention away from the real problem, which is fostering the ongoing collective formulation of rights in a political culture that respects both democratic decision-making and individual freedom, and recognizes the need to sustain the inevitable tension between them, between individual rights and democratic decision-making. In my view, Madison recognized this tension. In fact, it's part of his brilliance to see its inevitability. But he was too focused on the rights protection side of it. He was preoccupied with insulating property from democratic decision-making. As a result, he saw the ongoing reformulation of property rights as a danger to avoid, not as a basic social process in which the values of both democracy and individual rights must be integrated. Madison transformed a widespread fear about threats to property into a sophisticated analysis of the inherent problem of majority oppression. But in doing so, he also transformed this general problem into a question of how to contain the power of the people. He gave us a language, a conceptual framework for understanding the problems of democracy in which, however, the values and potential of democracy became submerged. Perhaps the clearest result was that public participation in politics was not itself an objective for Madison and his fellow Federalists. Indeed, in the the 1790s, here you can find private correspondence between the Federalists despairing they were counting on the gentlemen of substance and property to want to enter public life. They expected other people to focus on their own private concerns, on economic involvement, but they expected the right sort of people to go into public life and they were dismayed to find that not enough of them were, that many of that group also were more engaged with the daily tasks of commerce. Despite Madison's bold formulation of the challenge of equally protecting the rights of persons, property and participation, he accepted that at some level it wasn't really possible. And it was not possible because the inequality of property itself had to be protected. And indeed, of course, it was not until the Civil War Amendments that equality became an explicit constitutional value. And I think one might wonder whether the capacity to think deeply about the issues of equality was blocked, as long as the property to be protected included ownership of human beings. When trying to understand Madison and his legacy, it's important to recognize the ways his treating property as the paradigm for protecting rights distorted his, and to some extent, our understanding of the problem, and led to an institutionalized neglect of the issue of political participation. But it's equally important to recognize that Madison continued to struggle with his own challenge, and he was not willing to institutionalize a simple hierarchy of rights, even property rights, over democracy. The Constitution of 1787 left the tensions of persons, property, and participation skewed, in my view, but open. With the rise of judicial review, however, the conceptual hierarchy of civil over political rights crystallized into a kind of institutional hierarchy. And it is here that I want to turn to the issues of constitutionalism. Now, most people who are not close students of Madison don't know that he was opposed to protecting rights by setting up judges as the final word over the considered will of the legislature. At the federal convention, he had an unwieldy plan of a council of revision that would include both the executive and judges. Every law would be submitted to both the executive and the judges. And probably for good reasons, it never gained support. He kept coming back to it over and over again in the convention, and he could never garner much interest for it. But, and as I say, probably for good reasons. But what was lost with this idea of Madison's was a vision of how to protect rights against democratic excess that is very different from what emerged as the American form of judicial review. His idea was that all laws should be submitted both to the executive and to the Supreme Judiciary. And if one of those, if either of them should object to the law, two-thirds of the house would then have to repass it. It would serve as a partial veto that could be passed by two-thirds of the house. If both the executive and the judges opposed the law, then it would take three-quarters of the house to overrule the objections. And then later on, When he was thinking about the Virginia Constitution, um, he refined this scheme by adding that if either or both, the executive or judiciary, protest against a bill as violating the Constitution. So in the first one, you don't have to say why you oppose it. But if the objection to the law is that the law violates the Constitution, he says, let it moreover be suspended notwithstanding the overruling proportion of the assembly. So even if they get the two-thirds or the three-quarters, the law will be overruled until there shall have been a subsequent election of the House of Delegates, and then a repassage of the bill by two-thirds or three-quarters of both houses, as the case may be. And he concluded this proposal by saying, It should not be allowed the judges or the executive to pronounce a law thus enacted unconstitutional and invalid. Now, I see this as an early insight into a model of constitutionalism I call a dialogue of democratic accountability. Rather than what the phrase which has become famous from Ronald Dworkin, rather than a model of constitution in which Rights are Trump's to be decisively played by the court. Madison wanted a means of holding the legislature accountable to the core values of the Constitution. There should be a public official statement that a law the legislature had duly passed was inconsistent with those values. And then the electorate would be given time to reconsider until the next election. And if they still returned to office representatives who would vote in overwhelming numbers for the impugned law, then it was not for the judges or the executive to override their considered judgment. So that this was really an aim at democratic excess, a failure to think through an issue seriously. But if you could see that the electorate had turned its mind because there had been a subsequent election in which one assumed that these issues would be debated, If under those circumstances, the considered judgment of the electorate and their representatives was to pass that law by overwhelming numbers, then the final word should lie with them and not with judges. Now, Canada has its own version of such a notwithstanding clause. In fact, that's what it's called. As some of you may know, in 1982... The Canadian Constitution added a Charter of Rights, something like our Bill of Rights, for the first time, which formally gave judges the power of judicial review over rights as opposed to federalism. In the past, all of the exercise of of judicial review had, had taken place around the issues of federalism, and they had found ways sometimes of protecting rights via that vehicle. But this was the introduction of a Charter of Rights as such, But in order to get all the provinces to agree, and again, probably many of you will know that although the formal structure of the Canadian Constitution has a much more powerful federal government than the formal structure of the United States Constitution, in practice it is the reverse. The provinces have a great deal more power in Canada than the states do here vis-à-vis the federal government. So it was an important compromise for some of the provinces, all of whom had to sign on to the creation of this new part of the Constitution, that they add what is called the override or the notwithstanding clause. And this clause, Section 33, permits Parliament or provincial legislatures to declare that a law shall operate notwithstanding certain sections of the Charter. So fundamental freedoms, religion, expression, association, assembly, and legal rights can be overridden by the legislatures not democratic rights, voting, and so on, mobility rights, or language rights. The effect of such a declaration, that is, if if a legislature decides to say this, they pass a law and they explicitly say this law shall go into effect notwithstanding the freedom of speech provision of the Charter, such a declaration is limited to a maximum of five years, which is roughly tied to the life of a parliament. Thus, it's sort of like a reverse of Madison's plan. The decision to renew and override would come before a newly elected legislature. And again, the presumption would be it would have been debated. The notwithstanding clause has, in fact, very rarely been invoked. Some uh, politicians, uh, the former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, have publicly announced that their government wouldn't use it. It's been used by Quebec in a complicated way I won't go into at the moment. But in principle, this idea that you can have a time-limited override such that there'll be a new election invites a dialogue between courts, legislatures, and citizens. The final word remains in the hands of duly elected representatives, the legislatures. And thus, according to some, it makes the Charter of Rights consistent with parliamentary sovereignty, the tradition in Canada. But, of course, presumably, there's a political cost to be paid for invoking the notwithstanding clause. The legislature has to explicitly announce its intention to violate the Constitution, or at least that it intends the law to be in effect even if a court were to find it in violation. And in ways similar to Madison's model, the expectation is that the contested law will be a matter of public debate in ensuing elections. Canada also has another means of of inviting dialogue that puts it in sharp contrast with the American model. Section 1 guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in the Charter, quote, subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So that it's built into the statement of the Constitution that... Some balances, rights against rights, public good against rights, is intrinsic to the meaning of those rights. Now, my experience, um, I was still teaching at Princeton after 1982, trying to tell American students about this emerging form of constitutionalism in Canada is that Americans are so wedded to the form of constitutionalism that has evolved around American-style judicial review that when they hear about the combination of Section 1 and the override, they conclude that Canadians don't really have constitutional rights since those rights do not simply operate as Trump's. But Section 1 makes it possible, for example, to say that libel laws or laws against shouting fire in a crowded theater or in Canada some law against hate speech are interferences with free speech. Not to pretend that whatever the interferences are, if you think they're justified, they don't count as interferences. You call them interferences and then you explicitly articulate the justification. That's what Section 1 does for the structure of the jurisprudence the inevitable balancing of rights can be explicitly articulated. As it has developed, a great deal of Canadian constitutional jurisprudence turns on arguments about what kinds of limits are justifiable in a free and democratic society. Some of the dialogue is internal to courts and the legal community, but legislatures also know that they may be called upon to articulate justifications for limitations and thus they consider doing so in advance. Sometimes you can see this in the preambles of law, sometimes in the public discussion. The South African Constitution also has what it calls a limitations clause, which is more elaborate than the Canadian Section 1. It reads in part that the rights entrenched in the Constitution may be limited, provided that such limitation is reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society based on freedom and equality and shall not negate the essential content of the right in question. These clauses invite an open and explicit inquiry into the context and competing values that are always at stake in rights interpretation. While Madison had a sense of the possibility of institutional dialogue in this preliminary picture he formed, of calling on citizens to think twice about laws that might violate rights rather than simply trying to prevent them from passing such laws. He showed little sense of the need for institutional inquiry into the meaning of rights. Of course, his very insight into the nature of property's vulnerability grew out of the fact that the legitimate legal meaning of property was contested and he spent a great deal of energy trying without much success to educate his fellow citizens to see that debtor relief laws and depreciating currency amounted to violations of property rights. Nevertheless, he seemed confident that he knew, and men of substance would know, what property rights really were. Today, we can look back at 200 years of rights interpretation and see the shifts in the meaning not just of property but of core values like equality. Even if there are deep, immutable truths that underlie the core values that we try to capture in constitutional rights, most people today, I think, recognize that there is always a challenge of how to interpret them, how to institutionalize such core values in the form of legal rights. It's rarely self-evident what will give practical effect to a core value in a given context, and these contexts shift. As a result, we can now see that those who defend rights, who we think of as the courts conventionally, are also empowered to define those rights. And then we have to ask the question somewhat differently, of who should have such authority, and what should their relationship be to other bodies, legislatures in particular, whose job it also is to implement, define, and defend rights. That is, if you just ask yourself who should defend rights as if the meaning of those rights were not itself subject to the problem of definition. Then it's easier to say, well, judges can defend rights against democratic incursion. But if you acknowledge that the meaning of those rights is itself a collective project, then the issue of who should do that becomes more complicated in my view. And it's in this context that we can see the imaginative alternatives emerging to American-style judicial review as efforts to develop Madison's preliminary efforts at structuring a dialogue of democratic accountability. These are different ways of trying to hold democratic decision-making accountable to the deepest values of the society while trying to ensure that those values are defined articulated and defended in ways that are themselves democratically justifiable. At the same time that we can see contemporary constitutionalism outside the U.S. as moving Madison's vision further, we can see the continued value of the challenge he set for himself of protecting persons' property and participation. Perhaps this is nowhere so poignantly clear as South Africa They have self-consciously set about to create a culture of rights and to foster a climate of active democratic participation. Their voter turnout rate is about 85%. And they're committed to protecting the property of all, the squatters in the townships and the investors in corporate capital. And they want to find a way to give real meaning to the equal protection of the rights of persons in the face of vast economic and social inequality that's not going to go away overnight. Similarly, I think Madison's formulation helps us to think about the struggles in the former East Bloc countries. They might also be seen as trying to create genuine democracy in which the rights of property are secure enough for the economy to function while securing the social and economic rights that many see as the foundation for true equality. Finally, I think Madison's challenge reminds us not to make the mistake one can see in an important strain of contemporary constitutional theory, and that is to treat democracy as the only value, presuming that all the other rights we care about can be derived from equality. For myself, I think the clearest uh, way of seeing this is to see the odd distortions that happen. It's easy to say that freedom of speech is essential for democracy. It's therefore a right which really comes from the commitment to uh, democracy. But if you think about freedom of conscience, um, freedom of religion, I think it distorts why we care about that value, to say that the reason we care about it is that it's important for democracy. Of course it is important for a democracy, but that, that does not exhaust the value of that right. So that we see, as Madison did, that there are rights whose importance to us comes independently from the importance we attribute to democracy. And that there's very often a tension between the two. And, of course, as I say, Madison pointed to that tension, and although I think he miscast the tension in various ways, he was right in his instinct to maintain it. Madison overemphasized, as I said, the right side and neglected democracy, but it will not help us to reverse that error, to move in this modern world to focus exclusively on democracy. Optimal forms of constitutionalism will keep the tension alive, as Madison tried to. So I want to turn now from the insights and limitations of Madison's understanding of constitutionalism to see his legacy, to look at his legacy in terms of equality, which I see as both the heart of his challenge and its manifest failure. As I've said, Madison did not want to use judicial review as the primary mechanism for responding to the inherent vulnerability of rights in a democracy. But, of course, American constitutionalism via judicial review is what has become famous throughout the world as the solution to majority tyranny. And it's particularly famous around issues of equality. Brown v. Board of Education is a worldwide symbol of the courts protecting the rights of a minority from unjust laws. And it's not Madison's now arcane examples of depreciating currency, but Brown, that students everywhere know as demonstrating Madison's insight that duly elected democratic legislatures can use their authority to violate the rights of others when they see it to be in their interest. And it's the Supreme Court, not Madison's carefully designed structure of federal institutions, that is the hero of the story. In a similar vein, the American Supreme Court is most infamous for its effort to block the equality promoting legislation of the New Deal during the Lochner era. This too stands as a worldwide symbol anywhere in the world where people talk about constitutionalism. A symbol of what courts should not do. Now however imprecise the popular understanding of this Lochner era and what its problems were, I think everyone gets the basic point that the individualistic freedom of contract analysis provided an inappropriate ground to strike down legislation aimed at power imbalances that kept wages low and hours long. So now, where do Madison's insights point us in thinking about equality today? And how is the American Supreme Court that has become the symbol of protection against democratic injustice handling the issues of equality today? put these questions in more Madisonian terms, let us remember that he saw the structure of institutions as the key to the security of rights, to stability, to patterns of participation, to the basic capacity of a country to live out its core values. At the turn of the millennium, what have our structures brought us? And since judicial review is now a central part of that structure, how are the courts doing in response to the problems of equality that the structures generate. First, of course, we have to acknowledge that after over 200 years, America has achieved a stable, enduring democracy, in which the language of rights is a commonplace, even in the schoolyard. I have colleagues who, from the law school who visited at Yale in the early 80s just after the charter, and they had school, young children, so too young to have had any experience with the charter. When they went to school in New Haven, they came home and they said, the kids are all the time saying, I have a right. What does it mean? Does it mean they're right? It, it was just not a locution they were familiar with, whereas, as I say, every schoolyard American kid uses it and... Some good sociologists will have to tell us whether in another 10 years the uh, Canadian schoolyards will sound the same. And I think it's not a trivial achievement to have accomplished that kind of culture of rights. But how close are we to a republic that equally protects the rights of all to property, to participation, and to the basic rights that even the poorest, in principle, share with the wealthy? Madison's aspiration should remain a live challenge to us. And to pursue that challenge, I collected a few statistics that I want to share with you. And I, I, in case your eyes glaze over at the thought of statistics, there are really not very many of them. Um, and I want to say that although as I, when I gathered these, although there was nothing radically new to me in them, I found it a very sobering and disturbing experience to confront them afresh, and I hope you'll be able to do that with me as you listen. So first, let's consider participation. Whether or not the cause lies in my claim of the framers' failure to take participatory democracy as an objective, a structural failure lies somewhere. Voter turnout, which is, of course, just one measure of political participation, but a key one, averaged about 45 percent in the 1990s that places the united states 140th of 163 countries ranked in one study i looked at canada does not much better but not great i should say at 60 percent ranking at 109 the uk is about 72 percent denmark 81 percent iceland 88 italy 90 just to give you a comparative framework Looking at all the elections since 1945, U.S. voter turnout is about 48% of the voting age population. Even leaving aside the role of race and wealth in voter turnout, whites and the well-off turnout in higher numbers, it's a troubling statement about the reality of equal participation when less than half of the voting age population votes. So now let's turn to the civil rights for which political rights were the means. Assessing America's success in meeting Madison's challenge must be done in the overall context of its successes as one of the wealthiest countries in the world. The United Nations Human Development Report of June 2000 ranks Canada as the first, they're very proud, um, and Norway and the U.S. as second and third of 174 countries in terms of life expectancy, education, and income. But although the U.S. has the second highest per capita among 18 of the richest per capita income, among 18 of the richest countries, it has the highest poverty rate, followed by Ireland and the U.K. And now the main reason for this is because as they compile poverty rate, they include the prevalence of functional illiteracy, which in the U.S., according to that study, is approximately one person in five and I'm sure I don't need to spell out to you the consequences for political, social, or economic equality of illiteracy. Now, disturbing as these figures are, the ones I found most painful were those on child poverty. And as you listen to these figures, I hope you'll think about the pain and shame that children in poverty endure, as well as the impact on such things as their effective access to education. So this is a uh, February 2000 report. Over 13 million children live in poverty, and the number of ch- in the U.S., number of children living in poverty has increased by 3 million since seven, 1979. Poverty rate grew by 15 percent from 79 to 98, so we're not going in the right direction. 19 percent of children live in poverty. The poverty level is uh, set at 13,000 for a family of three, 1998 figures. The U.S. child poverty rate is substantially higher, almost two to three times higher than most of the other major Western industrialized nations. And there's an inequality even within these figures, so that the child poverty rate is highest for African Americans, 37%, and Latino, 34%. And even so, by international standards, it's exceptionally high for white children, 11%. 8% of America's children live in extreme poverty, And perhaps, again, the most disturbing version of this is that 40% of American children live in or near poverty, that is, with families with incomes less than twice the poverty line, so below $26,000. 40% of children live in such families. Are the rights of those children to a fair chance in life to the undeniable opportunities the U.S. provides being protected? With those numbers, can we share Madison's confidence that because the rich and the poor share the basic rights of persons, that we don't have to worry about their equal protection? Madison understood the systematic nature of injustice in the sense of the dangers, the vulnerabilities of rights that different structures of institutions can generate. Of course, we know now that he did not turn his mind to the systemic dangers of injustice to racialized minorities, to Aboriginal peoples, to women, or even to the poor. But what's important is that his conceptual framework, his attention to structures rather than, say, malicious intention, would have permitted him to. And in many countries in the world, Canada and South Africa, for example, Constitutional jurisprudence has tried to respond to these issues of systemic injustice. And this response takes two basic forms, which I'm just going to tell you briefly. The first is the recognition built into Canada's Charter of Rights and into South Africa's Constitution that over long years of governmental action and inaction, historic disadvantage can become entrenched in ways that are best redressed by governmental action aimed at ameliorating the conditions of the disadvantaged. Thus, the second part of Canada's equality provision provides that these equality rights do not preclude any law, program, or activity that has as its object the amelioration of the conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups. Thus, programs aimed at this amelioration, such as affirmative action, are not violations of the equality provisions. Now, of course, the drafters of of Canada's charter and South African constitution had the American experience of legal challenges to affirmative action before them, and they wanted to make sure there was no such misunderstanding in the meaning of their equality clauses. And the idea of affirmative action is not compensation for proven past discrimination by any given entity but the need to take action prospectively in order to achieve real equality. Both these provisions and the jurisprudence that is developed make it clear, in I think a very Madisonian way, that it is in the nature of systemic injustice that no deliberate attempt to discriminate is necessary to perpetuate it. The second related form of the response to systemic disadvantage is a jurisprudence of substantive rather than formal equality. In Andrew's The First Big Equality Case under the Charter, as one commentator put it, the Canadian Supreme Court, quote, accepted the principle that equality is not fundamentally about sameness and difference, formal equality, but rather about socially created, systematic, historical, and cumulative advantage and disadvantage. Part of this approach is the recognition, as Madam Justice larue Bay puts it, that inequality can be perpetuated through the disparate impact of legislation on individuals and groups, within the broader social, economic, and political context. And she quotes Madam Justice Wilson saying that it is only by examining the larger context that a court can determine whether differential treatment results in inequality or whether, contrarywise, it would be identical treatment that would be, <clears throat> in the particular context, result in inequality or foster disadvantage. And Justice Goldstone of the Constitutional Court of South Africa puts it this way, We need to develop a concept of unfair discrimination which recognizes that although a society which affords each human being equal treatment on the basis of equal worth and freedom is our goal, we cannot achieve this goal by insisting upon identical treatment in all circumstances before that goal is achieved. Of course, the constitutional meaning of substantive equality is not simply a settled matter in any jurisdiction it's a huge ongoing project. Indeed, the project of working out the meaning of substantive equality is part of an ongoing conversation among conversations among courts all over the world. But the United States courts are not part of that conversation. American equality jurisprudence has steadfastly resisted this recent of the last 20 years or so, this recognition of systemic inequality and the need for a substantive approach to equality to respond adequately to it. While courts around the world increasingly look to each other's jurisprudence to see how other constitutional democracies are handling the complex problems of rights, American courts rarely look beyond their national boundaries. And around the issue of equality, fewer and fewer courts around the world look to the U.S. for guidance because it stands increasingly isolated in its preoccupation with formal equality. While once American jurisprudence was the model of constitutional protection of rights around the world, it is becoming increasingly marginal, particularly in the realm of equality. In my view, this is in many ways to the good for the world, as alternative approaches to constitutionalism, such as the Canadian Charter, become more widely emulated as I argued earlier, approaches that foster a dialogue of democratic accountability rather than a rights as Trump's model is preferable. But the international isolation is sad for the U.S. A fuller engagement with the jurisprudence of other constitutional democracies might relieve some of the fears around substantive equality and enable courts to play a greater role in achieving Madison's ambitions. As it is, property is well protected, but the equal rights of persons and participation leave a lot to be desired. In conclusion, I think my reflections on the challenge Madison set for himself yield ironies, failures, and inspiration. Madison's brilliant insights into the vulnerability of rights in a democracy have come to be best understood in terms of an institution he rejected, judicial review of the constitutionality of laws. He himself allowed his deep commitment to finding solutions consistent with democratic values to be tainted by a hierarchy of civil and political rights. The balance we have been left with has ultimately given rise to one of the lowest participation rates in the Western world. The degree of economic, social, and effective political inequality in the U.S. today seriously challenges the idea of equal rights for all. But the core of Madison's insights and aspirations endure around the world. Other countries try different ways to define their deepest values in terms of rights and to find ways of protecting those rights in ways consistent with a deep commitment to democracy and equality. The best way to honor Madison is to continue to struggle as he did, to meet the challenge he set to himself, to openly evaluate the tensions between the rights of property, persons, and participation, and to join in international dialogue to imagine new and better ways of achieving genuine equality in a democracy capable of securing the rights of all. Thank you. I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you. Yes.
4: For the opponent of judicial review, Madison, we learned about last
5: night Professor Wood came to favor judicial review near the end of his life. I'm wondering if these two views can be reconciled at all or why you are right and Professor Wood is wrong. Oh, well. Uh, so does this mean I don't need to repeat the questions? Yes?
6: we we'll get them in the, uh...
5: Okay. Um, well, let me say first that uh, I, I thought I completely agreed with Professor Wood's basic thesis last night, which is that the way to understand what might look like an inconsistency in Madison is that, What he cared about was this dilemma that I pointed to. And in 1787, he thought all the threats were coming from one direction. He thought the real threat was going to be democratic injustice. At that point, he couldn't imagine uh, a powerful enough national government in the hands of the property to pose a threat in the other direction. And I think many of the uh, quotes, some of the quotes people most like to take from Madison from this later period about how, um, about rights of, the rights of property are just parts of the rights of persons, there's some famous phrase like that, they're arising because he was really horrified to see what happened um, in the 1790s, and I think crudely put he saw that he had underestimated the possibility of um, men of property and substance and interest in certain kinds of political power using the national government to to move it in a direction in ways we've heard that that he thought was inimical to freedom. But even, he thought, I think, there was a period in the the 90s when he, he just shifted his notion of where the real threat lay. And I think that's that's what um, underlies these differences. Now, um, I I can't say that I actually heard Professor Wood specifically say that he became a proponent of judicial review. Maybe I missed that. Because the the elaboration of the formula that I was talking about comes from a somewhat later time. I think in the 90s, it's comments on um, Jefferson's draft for a, a constitution for Virginia. So that... I think he was fairly consistent throughout in hoping for an institutional solution that would not simply hand over the final word to the judges, but but only if you could find some other way of containing the inherent problem of democratic justice. So it's it's not, not, and I I don't think Professor Wood saw this either, um, it's not as though... He just stopped being worried about democratic injustice, but he saw that the threats were more multiple. They weren't all coming from one direction, and he continued to try to figure out ways of of structuring institutions that could keep that tension in balance in a way that he didn't think just handing uh, a kind of veto power, Trump power, to the courts would do.
0: Do you think it might be the American case law system and the binding force of precedent that uh, is the cause of what you say is the American court's isolation from, let's say, foreign uh, uh, jurisprudential influence?
5: I don't. Um, all the systems that I know of um, have similar systems of, of case law and precedent. Um, and. All the, whether it's Israel or South Africa or Germany, they're all explicit that the references to other jurisdictions are for guidance, for insight into the nature of the problem. They, they hold they cannot have any binding force, though the one thing I didn't mention is the increasing importance of international uh, law compacts that that governments have signed and the way in which those do have the force of law, which should be then integrated into constitutional interpretation. But just leaving that aside for a moment, the the attention to other people's jurisprudence is not blocked by the case method because others' jurisprudence is never treated as binding in any way. It's turned to when you get a hard problem like hate speech, and the tensions that that poses with freedom of speech, you want to see how other democracies which are committed to the freedom of speech and are committed to equality, are committed to non-racism, how they handled that problem. Um, and it, the article that I read recently by um, one of Canada's Supreme Court justices, Madame LaRue de Bay, about this, notes that when, re- after Canada's more than one big hate speech trial when when a similar case came before the American Supreme Court, they didn't even bother to cite their neighbor to the north who had had a lot of experience with this problem. So the short answer is is no. I think it's, um, you know, you see this not just in the court, uh, but, uh, you know, if you look at a scholarly journal anywhere in the world these days, it will have citations from sources all around the world. And if you look at American scholarly journals, um, they tend to be very heavily American. So there's there's a kind of insularity, which is not peculiar to the court, but it's particularly dangerous and harmful at the moment, I think, for the court. Uh, Yes, you and then Uh, If we were to take Madison's gift at uh, mixing attention to empirical reality and theory, how would we use that to think about revising the current structure of the uh, American court system? Well, I I thought about that. I thought somebody might ask me, well, what do you think we ought to do here? Um, And... uh, (laughs) I think it's very hard. You know, the truth is that my my examples of Canada and South Africa are in some ways cheats, right, because they're very new. The jurisprudence is new. They have the long history of American jurisprudence before them, both what's gone wrong and what's worked well. So to, to really transform the, the structure, I don't think um, that you could – Substitute something like the, American, the Canadian version of judicial review for the American in the US. I don't think you can do it. The tradition is, is too powerful. Um, and given the tradition, suddenly trying to hand over a notwithstanding clause, um, either to the Congress or to the states, is a little unnerving. Um, Not that they could probably do much worse than the current court, but um, the the answer that I came up with uh, anticipating a question like this uh, is is also um, sort of utopian in the sense that this is not in the cards, um, given the current political climate. But it's not a structural impossibility in the way in which uh, a complete transformation of the nature of judicial review or the court system would be. And this is drawn from um, an example, again, from Canada. Canada has another virtue, which is that it's in constant, or I should say, periodic constitutional crisis. And um, part, uh, partly because of Quebec, this has many virtues. Um, you know, very interesting for political scientists and constitutional lawyers, always something new to write about. And uh, also, it, it, non, incidentally, it keeps uh, the issues of Aboriginal rights and sovereignty, on the public radar in the U.S. in a way completely different from the United States. It is in the papers every day in Canada. Um, How to recognize the national sovereignty of indigenous peoples within the context of a state like Canada. But in the last round of the constitutional crises, there was a very interesting proposal put on the table which was to create a separate charter of social and economic rights and a separate institutional body for adjudicating those rights. And part of what was interesting was that it it took the form it did because many people who were in favor of social and economic rights um, were hostile to judicial review because judicial review is seen as anti-democratic. And um, even in Canada, some the, the record on, on labor laws isn't so great. Um, so they were uneasy about trying to increase the status of social and economic rights by giving additional scope to the judiciary. This didn't look to many of them like an appropriate balance of the tensions between rights and democracy, and so they, um, a huge coalition of equality-seeking groups came up with a very interesting proposal called the Alternative Social Charter, and it created a tribunal of um, members of the legislature and members of basically NGOs, representatives of disadvantaged groups, who would constitute themselves a body which could both ask, pose challenges, ask for studies, and hear complaints about failures to recognize social and economic rights, and it would authorize this body to command the legislature in question to respond to its concerns. And there was actually an interesting structure. It really was a perfect example of my Dialogue of Democratic Accountability because there was a sort of back-and-forth structure between this adjudicative tribunal and the legislature in question. In the end, the legislature will have the final word, just like it does in the Charter. But it invited a way of holding legislatures accountable to values other than handing it over to the courts. And so even my examples that I've given you of South Africa and Canada in these ways, I think are not sufficiently imaginative. They don't sufficiently stick with what Madison was trying to do of trying to figure out more intrinsically democratic methods of making legislatures respond to challenges about their failure to protect rights. And such a thing, there's no structural reason why you couldn't have some something like that in the United States as in Canada. Just as in Canada it was going to be added to the existing structure, it could be added to the existing structure here without trying to overturn two hundred years of tradition around judicial review. Thank
7: you. I I think so. Yes. Oh, thanks. Even as Madison was uh, formulating his ideas about the protection of property, the Continental and early U.S. Congresses were actively creating new forms of property uh, by legislating statutory entitlements in the form of land grants, uh, preemption rights, and veterans' pensions. Um, these were all benefits that required resource extraction and redistribution. I was wondering if you could comment on this um, seeming gap between political theory and action. Uh, sorry, can you just say another
5: word about the, the gap that you see? I, I, didn't, I didn't quite get it.
7: Uh, there was a lot of legislative activity both in the pre-U.S. and U.S. Congre- early U.S. Congresses, aimed at creating statutory entitlements, um, mm-hmm. what Charles Reich might have called new property.
3: Uh-huh.
7: Um, even as you describe Madison as formulating his ideas about the protection of property somewhat as if property was an exogenous given. And right. so I'm wondering if you could sort of comment on what seems to be a gap between political theory, not just of Madison's, but other people then right. and, and sort of action.
5: Thank you. I didn't quite get it initially. Um, well, of course this is uh, this gap by the way I think has con- characterized American theory and law of property throughout the entire history of the country um that there's one thing that's really going on in both the courts and the legislatures which is um a vast multiplicity and uh, changing rules and laws of property um some of which have the effect of um rendering previous forms of property insecure or invalid uh, st- And superimposed on this legal legislative reality of tremendous shifts and changes is a very static uh, invocation of the sanctity of private property. And it's one of the things that, uh, and I think it continues continues today. Um, The the point that I think is important and implicit in your question is that, Despite all this going on, it just did not generate in Madison a a reflection saying, you know what, it's not just that there's a problem of protecting property, it's what is property. Who defines it? How are we going to tell what property is? And how could that be both democratically determined and sufficiently stable and secure? That's, to me, that's the real puzzle. That's what South Africa is dealing with. That's what the East Bloc is dealing with. Could you find uh, viable democratic means of ongoing transformations in the meaning of property that is consistent with stability and security? And, of course, to some extent, every country does. We have. Um, But uh, I think it's a real blind spot in Madison, and not just for the reasons that you give, but but the reason that I mentioned here that the whole point of his being preoccupied with it was he knew that in practice there was no consensus about actually how property was going to be protected. That was the problem, right? People were willing to pass laws that violated property in his mind. Um, but that didn't generate for him a deep inquiry, an openness, a sort of saying, well, you know what? Maybe we don't really know what property is. It did not have that form. And I think, you know, in in fairness, my my historian colleagues here can can add to this, but uh, I think none of the conceptions of rights at the time invited that kind of inquiry, even though, in the same way as property, the practical issues of what freedom of religion should mean and its relationship to uh, churches and tax exemptions, statuses of churches and all those issues. There's nothing simple or straightforward about it practically, and yet I think at the time, the problem was still how to defend rights and not to see the point that I was making, that the definition of rights is intrinsic to the problem of defending rights. Uh, yes, I can. I'm sorry, I geared my eyes in that direction. Yes.
0: Thank you. Uh, You use the word property, and I'm sure that's what Madison always used. But property is hardly meaningful today. We think of property as merely real estate. The word wealth is much more relevant, I think, in today's world. Now, the question I want to ask is, did Madison perceive, and if so, how did he deal with the possibility that wealth and political power were equivalent? Uh,
5: Thank you. Just just a quick note on the first one. Um, While I I share your sense that the the nature of the threats and the problems come from the issue of wealth, we don't want to underestimate the liveness of the question of the meaning of property. Um, The the cyber revolution um, is full of, I mean, there's just whole new volumes and journals of stuff around intellectual property. You know, do you, is, is, is a um, computer program, is that a patent? Is it for patent or for trademark? Well, actually it turns out to be one of the few things you can get both on. And uh, it's, you know, it's a, a kind of creative mess at the moment about what is property in this new world of ours and what are the, what do we therefore want the function of property to be and so on. So it's not, not exactly a closed uh, issue. But the one thing I I didn't say here, uh, just because I thought it was going to muddy up the structure, is that the other half of, if if one of the costs of the way, of the distortions in Madison's uh, very brilliant formulation, but a distorted formulation, if one was the neglect of participation as an objective, because if the focus is all on protecting rights from, the other was the interpenetration of economic and political power. And there were some of his colleagues, um, in some ways some of his more conservative colleagues, like Governor Morris, who were very attentive to this, who were talking about it all the time, the interpenetration of economic and political power and how you could contain it. And the problem was that he didn't have very imaginative answers to that question. Um, And I think it goes back to the first question that what happened in the 90s for Madison was that he really saw that the dangers of interpenetration of economic and political power were much more real than he had thought he thought that in a republic you didn't have to you weren't the dangers were all going to come in on the other side and so it was a it was a neglect and and again I would say it's a systemic neglect which stays with us as a failure to think that one through
0: I want to ask uh I was going to ask you to join in thanking Jennifer again. We've done that, and thank you, Jennifer, very, very much. Uh, two quick announcements. Uh, for those of you who registered for conference meals, they are will be provided in the new Frist Campus Center, which if uh, you're an old Princetonian, you'll know as Palmer Hall. It's been extended. You go down this way through the courtyard and find your way down to the so-called multipurpose room, on floor B. I suspect there are signs uh, to guide you, and if not, uh, you'll see a stream of people going there. Secondly, we'll resume our conference uh, precisely at 1.30 and carry on in much the same format as this morning. Thank you very much, and thank you again, Jennifer.